Blank check with Griffin and David. Blank check with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Check. Have you ever been in love in podcast, Joshua? Can't say I've had that pleasure, Reggie. Well, you're still young. Maybe you still have a chance. <gasps> in uh, love in podcast, I don't know. Yeah, that's about as good sure. as you can get. I was right? like watching the movie, looking for yep. you know possible quotes and. Well, and also David and I were talking about this, and uh, I, we'll talk about this. But we got too many Davids this episode. Too many. We got Davids. hashtag the two Davids. Yeah. Um, or as you said, these are the Davids I know. They're all here. Right. Uh, all two of them. Um, but. Uh, the lines that stick out to me most in this movie are the lines that are directly lifted verbatim from Charade, which are the lines that stick out like a sore thumb because they're clearly out of a different movie. A different screenplay. Every time they reappropriate a line that I find so charming in Charade, you're like, where the fuck did this come from? Right. It does not fit whatsoever. Yeah. Is the, he the only writer on this? No, this no, one no. has, so has many. four writers. So many okay, you want, can I talk about this? Four writers. One. Jonathan Demi, who often is not credited as a writer on one of his films. That's true. Right? That's true. Two is uh, Steve Schmidt, who when I clicked on Wikipedia, it directed me to Steve Schmidt, the campaign manager for John McCain, who was the <laughs> subject of HBO's uh, Game Change. Yeah, the, 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 the sort of bullet-headed guy. Played by Woody Harrelson. It, right, it is not, right. in fact, the same Steve Schmidt. You're kidding for, me. <laughs> for half a minute, I got amped. <laughs> Okay. Did this guy like hard pivot to? to That's what I, I. But then pivoted back to politics. <laughs> Third screenwriter is uh, what's her name? Jessica. Jessica uh, ben- Bendinger, who um, wrote "Bring It On." Yeah. Then wrote, Aqu- wrote, wrote Aquamarine, Stick It, uh, Stick Aquamarine. It, and directed Stick It. Was kind of the the she patron wrote, um, saint of the Teen Girl movie. Right. She wrote First Daughter. If you remember yes. that one. Uh, and then hasn't made a movie since Stick It, which Katie Stick Holmes. It, by the way, fucking slaps. Stick It's good. Stick that's it with Jeff Bridges, with, uh, Missy Peregrine. Yeah, right? yeah, that movie honks. That's my that's my word. I know. I'm just trying to get it out there. I like it. I like it. Um, but hasn't worked since then. This yeah. is the one outlier in her career. It doesn't fit in with the rest of her oeuvre. Yeah, it's kind of cool Did that she Demi have other hired. screenwriting credits before this. Bring it on. I believe is her first screenwriting Bring credit. Bring it on would, have been, yeah, would be, be the same year, a year before. Year before right. Yeah. That's it. Right, and then it's all teen girl movies. Creme de la creme teen girl. She had also worked on Sex in the City, I think, is a very low-level... Right, but that, uh, that was her other big credit, yes. That so, was, so, so she, she came out of Sex in the City. And then the fourth screenwriter on this movie... Yes, Peter Stone, who wrote Charade. No, uh, but, and, but, and is credited here as Peter Joshua because he hated the movie. He hated the movie, so he used the name that Cary Grant uses yes. in Charade as his fake name... To distance himself from the movie, and then this movie flips that fake name. So instead of Peter Joshua, it's Joshua Peters. But also, it's now credit is being written by Peter Joshua, who's not a real person. Also, he's a great writer. He wrote, you know, Taking Pelham One, Two, Three. Like he wrote a lot of, you know, fun seventies, sixties, seventies movies. And okay. hated this movie and was joined in that sentiment by most of the world. <laughs> That's too strong because no one saw the fucking thing. But yeah, most people who saw it, yes. The, the 13 people were like, Roger no, thank Ebert. you. Yeah. Here's an astonishing fact that I just noticed while looking for a quote on the IMDb page. Top trivia fact on Truth About Charlie is Mark Wahlberg considers this his, his worst, worst film. film. Now, that might be some snippet from an interview that was done pre- the happening. Because he or, talks like, about you know, the happening quite a bit. He often will dunk on the price. happening. But that is... You know, that's uh, well, there's some competition. Quite a sentiment. How do you feel this compares to the happening on the Wahlberg 
scale. This is a thousand times better. This is much better. And I feel like his miscasting is uh, a little uh, less profound. Yes. The happening is just the, yeah. the platonic ideal of like wrong place, wrong time for him. The happening is also a perfect example of one of my least, least favorite phenomenons in film, which is uh, actor hates their character. Yes, yes. Is right. so embarrassed by and and resentful towards the person they've been hired to play, the fictional character. All right. This, it feels like he's trying. It's a bit of an odd fit, sure. but it's less embarrassing than the happening where he feels so actively embarrassed to play a nerd. It's also a role he keeps Working on, he, I mean, this is the same character as all the money in the world. Basically, it feels he keeps, like he keeps right. high status returning to this every world. seven yes. or eight years. He comes back to, can I be the super calm, intelligent, sophisticated man? Right. When Wahlberg is always good with a chip on his shoulder, that's, that's he can what I never say. He be needs the to be guy, low status, not high status. He can yeah. never be the guy completely in control. He always has to prove but something to someone. Introduce our podcast so that I can take you through Wahlberg just up to here. Well, that brief and introduce our guest. Of course, yep. this podcast is called Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. Right. right. I'm David. And? David Lowry. Well, <laughs> the other David. David. Hashtag two the two David. Davids. Yep. Um, it's a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers, given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. This is certainly a crazy passion project at a, a pretty fucking big check. A $60 million movie, I think. $60 million this 15 60 years million. ago. Yeah. 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 So this is like an $80 million movie. <laughs> I mean, I think it's also, I guess it's that era of, you know, Wahlberg's probably getting a big check, right? He's become an A-lister. What? Sort I mean, this of. is right after Planet of the Apes. Right. This so. is his worst A-list period where people are like, the guy can do anything, right? And then very quickly they're like, no, 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 no. He can't he do Planet anything. Planet of the Apes and Perfect Storm. That's right. right. That's what I want to take you through is that he really had had well, some big hits. Let me finish my introduction. Yes, thank you. Sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce, baby. <laughs> sure. This is a mini series on the films of Jonathan Demi. It's called Stop Making Podcast. Today we're talking the truth about Charlie, arguably his biggest bounce, mm -hmm. certainly financially, in relation to its growth. I would think so. The biggest bounce. Yeah. yeah. And we got the great David Lowry with us, back for the second time, director mm -hmm. and writer, Old Man of the Gun. Did I screw up the Keep intro earlier it. when I said my last name? No, it was supposed to be. Exactly. You have to talk before we introduce. Exactly. Well, no, I know that, but I was like, should I have just said David and left it a little bit of a mystery? Oh, like, I suppose. I wasn't going to give you a line yeah. reading. I think either one worked. I was happy. It with seemed what okay. You did. I probably screwed it up even more by talking about it now. But no, no, that's right. definitely we're keeping that in and right, doubling right. it. Keep it all in. Um, but it's so excited to have you back on the show. It's a thrill to be back. So much has happened in the past year. Oh, that's crazy. What a year! It's been about just over a year. Yeah, yeah. Because we did Sleepy Hollow. Long before we well put before. it up on the feed. Yeah. Right. So I think the last time you saw me, I was leaving here to go buy a suit for the premiere of Old Man and the Gun. Correct. Correct. And was, I talked about it in a following episode, but I went to that premiere, and that suit was incredible. It was a little ill-fitting. You can find the no, pictures. No, and I mean, I, I was stuck. Because you were selling so hard, like, oh, I feel, like, silly. I didn't pack anything. I'm going to be underdressed. I need to buy something. And you were talking about, like, I'm going to be so under the gun. No pun intended trying to find something last minute. And then I thought you had a killer look. It was a it was a classic Zara, 15-minute walk-in, walk-out. It's a great suit. I um, thought, good fit. It, Maybe it, you it was, want tighter usually, but it was a good fit. It was, it was good enough. It was good enough. I mean, that whole the whole screening, you might say, was a little loose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Q&A was a little loose. A little loose. Why was it Why was it loose? I wasn't there. It, there was, it was freewheeling. Yeah. I don't, I, I, I'm trying to find right the right words to describe it that aren't backhanded it was because charming. I don't mean any. Yes. It was. There were questions that were asked from the audience mm. that were not heard 
and then other answers that were given. It was just, but it was all fun. There, it was were, like, there were both bizarre questions and bizarre answers. Lucy Goosey. You had yeah, like same. eight members of the cast there. I think it was a pretty was there. large contingency. Yeah. Oh, that's a, and, and a lot of characters. Yeah. You know. Uh, Redford gave the exact same answer twice to two different questions. Exactly. That was one of those. those it was instances. pretty incredible. And it was a long answer. And it was almost word for word identical for two different questions. And you were like, this is a man who's been doing press for decades. <laughs> and that was a week of that. I, yeah, I was I'm like, sure. It was right. like, I, I heard that answer. So many times in the same, and, and like, God bless him. Like, he knows exactly what to say, even if he repeats it. It's that thing. The people who are that good at being famous, I have noticed, really plan and perfectly script, if not literally type out, but really settle on, this is my answer. These, uh, this is how I'm going to talk about these subjects. I will not leave press up to chance. And so they know, like, their activation points. Question A goes with answer Z. Exactly. And they connect the dots. But it was amazing to watch him just reset on a second question. Versus the rest of us that say things that we were like, oh, my God, did I just say that? Yeah. Oh, right, my God. Right. It's like his anxiety. I just dug my own grave. I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. He's just totally chill. Yeah. Um, anyway. Anyway. I made that uh, or I made that movie. Mm-hmm. I premiered that movie. I wore a suit. Great suit. Very went, nice job. went and made another movie. Went and made another movie. Working on that right now. And now I'm back in New York just hanging out and uh, dropping by to talk. To, to dish on Demi? Talk to char. dish on Demi. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Some a little Demi, Demi dish. Huh? Yeah. Get her Demi dishes out. We're uh, wiping them clean. I don't know. Competitively. As in Rachel getting married. <laughs> oh, great scene. How, great scene. At this point, We have not know, done our Rachel getting married episode. This episode will be, you know, broadcast in about three years. Yes. We've made it through. It's going to be our, our Valentine's Day episode. It's oh, wonderful. It's going to be mid-Feb. I'll, yeah. I'll say this. Yes. I mean, we're recording this in November. It's many months away, the release. We have pretty much recorded every episode Up that takes there. place before this. Okay, yes. great. So we've we've gone through them and we've been largely nor- Beloved is the only Beloved one we is the only Demi yet. we haven't done chronologically, and we right. have not done any Demis post this. So, yes. Yeah. So you haven't done Beloved yet. We haven't done Beloved, but we've done Philadelphia, Sons of the Lambs. We've done everything. The so the, we've we're, done you're, the, uh, you're not catching us out of order. Last right. time we did Sleepy Hollow, which is at the midpoint. We did that very early. We recorded Burton. with you because uh, you are not a native New Yorker. We recorded with you like a month before we recorded any other Burtons. Oh, that's right. We were yeah. still recording Nancy Myers, and we did the one Burton out of order with you. It's good, though. Now, psychologically, you're catching us at this exact point. We've really been perfect. steeped. Right. Yes, we've been steeped and we've been going largely in order. Yeah. And uh, so it makes this movie all the more bizarre to watch. <laughs> it really does. It is so funny. I know you're you're chomping at the bit to get that, that Wahlberg out. No, I know. Go ahead. But it is so funny how his 90s are like such a weird they're kind sparse. of— They're sparse. They're sparse. There are obviously so many documentaries and like little things in between. But his three narrative fictional films in the 90s are weirdly of a piece— where they're like the most somber, straight-faced Demi. Like he steps away from the playful thing in terms of energy. And it's like him making like three dramas, you know? And they're a little, they shift a little in what kind of drama they are. Mm -hmm. But like it's him using all the style that he developed in comedy and applying it to the dramatic studio film with big movie stars and, you know, and the like. And then the 2000s become him being like, how do I bring that weird Demi stuff back but also... Like smuggle it into remakes of classic Hollywood films. I don't it's, know how else to describe. It's it. so interesting, you know, to discover where Demi came from before that nineties yeah. period. Because like I, you know, certainly became aware of him, of him with Signs of the Lambs in Philadelphia. That was like when I was like 11, 12, 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, okay, this is a prestige filmmaker who wins Oscars. He seemed right. like the most classically Oscar-y director. Exactly, and that's that just time. all I knew about him yeah. until like. Just getting into, I think most people of like 
my generation, our generation probably are like, oh, Paul Thomas Anderson loves this guy? I guess we should check right. out this early stuff. Right, because you go like, uh, Sansa Lamb's bizarre Oscar heavyweight. Philadelphia almost gets reduced to the basic idea of an Oscar Beatty movie. And then Beloved right, it becomes is like, like the people think of it as a temp when it's not. It's not. Wait, it's I have a to great ask, film. Did you do the merchandise spotlight on Philadelphia? Oh, my God. No, Lowry. What's the merchandise spotlight <laughs> on Philadelphia? But, David, yes. What is your Demi? What is your Demi experience? What's your how do you come to him? What do you think of him now? I um, feel like in whenever Silence of the Lambs came out, 91. it was like on the cover of Newsweek. And that was mm-hmm. my parents subscribed to Newsweek. So I remember I think I talked about this the last time. Like, that's also how I discovered Sundance and <laughs> yeah, wow. Tim Burton was through my parents' Newsweek subscription. Sure. In any case, there was a cover story about Silence of the Lambs and I think violence in media mm-hmm. that also included an image of um, Laura Palmer wrapped in plastic. Yeah, that was Silence of the Lambs was definitely one of those like, is this, has Hollywood finally gone yeah. too far? Yeah. Right. And yeah. the Laura Palmer image, which I assumed just flipping through the magazine, freaked me out so badly God. that I had my parents like throw that magazine away because right. it just really scared me. Yeah. You cursed it. But I assumed that that image was in Silence of the Lambs. So when I finally, sure. several years later, watched <laughs> wow. Silence of the Lambs, I was just like dreading that moment. Right. And then when you finally watched Twin Peaks, did you start screaming? <laughs> yes, basically. Yeah. I, no, by that point I was like, oh wait, that's that head. <laughs> like um, It is such an indelible image. that You mean the one that's uh, directly of her head? Yeah, just where, the classic. Yeah. 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 And, and I, I think, you know, my parents had a very, you know, they were very strict about what movies we were allowed to see. And so... I didn't see the film until high school, sure. but I did read the book. So I read oh, Silence of the Lambs. I yeah. read um, Red Dragon. Mm-hmm. Really loved both Those of them. Those books rule. I got to Hannibal after I'd already seen the movie. Um, I threw the book across the room. It was, it was lurid. <laughs> uh, I think Jonathan Demme did the same I'm thing. so mad. <laughs> Producer Rachel talking shit on Tom Harris. <laughs> yeah, grab, grab that mic, Rachel. Old Tommy H. Uh, for those, if, if you couldn't hear it, Rachel said she threw her copy of Hannibal across the room. I at got, the end? Like when, uh, yeah, when she, at the end. Yeah. yeah. She gets so out of, out of disgust at where the story went, but not yeah. out of, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, no. It um, seems like what most people did. Yes, people were upset. Yeah, it was real bad. Yeah. Um, I invested so much time in those books. Yeah. And They're they were good, good until the end. Hannibal's, Hannibal is all over the place. Was the Hannibal Lecter saga your Harry Potter, Rachel? Were you the person who was like, I can't wait to see what happens in book three? <laughs> well, I wasn't expecting that. Uh, that no, she I would get like with Hannibal. Right. Yeah, what the yeah. fuck is up with that? <laughs> I, I, it's what he decided to do. I appreciate no, it. I, I, yeah. I, I no, I think it's a strong. I mean, it's a different than any. It's different than anybody expected. But I was like, okay, I appreciate that choice. Like he it's went a swing. For it. it's, it's a, a swing, and he it's went for it. The and thing I, that I hated the most was there's a line that's something like, "It turned out that Clarice was just really uptight because she needed some good dick." Yeah, that, yeah, that, that stuff's sucks. not good. That stuff's not good. <laughs> that's a. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you for uh, years coming to my turn talk. Can I can I can I throw out a hot take quickly? Sure. I think that's bad. Good dick is just not ever really going to be ever. a phrase that lands ever. like smoothly. I, I don't feel think like. good dick should ever be said in any context, <laughs> especially not when you're talking about Shaney. My <laughs> definition of bad dick. There's this movie I saw last year. I'm going to forward it on to you. About Dick Cheney. Oh, thank God, because no one's told that story. And just the other day, Christian Bale said that. He heard what Dick Cheney thought of the movie or oh, really? his performance. Sure. Yeah. And could, because a friend of his went to a, like, had a kid at a private school and Dick Cheney was happened to be there and was like, oh, my friend Christian played you in a movie. And he's like, oh, tell him he's a dick. Wow. And that's like, uh, tell him he's a dick. Yeah. It could go both ways. It's a, it's kind of a, a he know. is yeah. dick. He's, of course. He, he, right. he's like, tell him he, you're like, 
Was he being Mystic. petty or is he it's our finest comedian? <laughs> it's one or the other. This was last week. Yeah. Breaking news. It'll be he, so old by the new George Saunders. Um. So anyway, I then did not see Philadelphia when it opened, but did see the Saturday Night Live commercial that we just watched on Saturday. Which I'm sure only fed into that idea of, oh, here's this very like kind of like stodgy Oscar drama. Precisely. That's right. a, and and to that be was how everyone honest, joked about I that. I didn't movie. have that much interest in seeing it. Like it didn't appeal to me. We yes. we talked about the same thing that I feel like we watched the movie David and I both out of obligation to fill in our Oscar blanks much later in life. And then you watch it and you're like, this thing is fucking weird. It's beautifully made. It's a beautifully made, incredibly esoteric, strange film. I need. I can't wait to see it again. So as, I, as as I listen to this podcast, I'll be revisiting a lot of these films, right. and that's why I, you know, I haven't seen since probably I was sixteen. Right. And then Beloved mostly looked like, oh, this is like a failed Oscar play. Now I love Beloved. Interesting. Like I love the book. Sure. I think like, I read the book in high school. Yeah. I read it again recently. It is in, absolutely incredible. I think the movie is about as not as good as the movie could be but a really good it's a really it's careful a, and yeah like, and um, it, it, it's thoughtful and loving adaptation of this it is a writer of American largely literature. thought of to be kind of unadaptable, unadaptable. Yeah. yeah and I would rather see right, right. that movie than like the HBO miniseries right. like I'd rather see it compressed into three hours mm-hmm. or three and a half it's quite long I think it's about three yeah but I wow. love you know I'm sure you'll talk about this more in the episode but I love the way Demi, and we you know, don't need to get into like whether Demi should have been the one to do it or not, whatever the case may be. Sure. Oprah brought it to him. Great. It's, uh, I love the way he treated the ghost story aspects of it. Mm-hmm. So, so much like a horror film. Right. Like there's like full on poltergeist it's attacks. It's like a poltergeist movie. Yeah. Right. And, right. And, and, and I think it, you know, towards the end, you can kind of feel that he's trying to cram a lot in there from the book. And the book isn't long. It's just that there's so much, it contains so much. Right. The breadth of it is so big. So did you see that when it came out? So I saw that when it came out. Okay. I saw that. It was, a, you know, by that point, that was 98. 97. And, 97. Uh, 98. You're right. I'm sorry. And I was a projectionist at that point. I okay. I've been a projectionist for a couple months. Right. And um, so I remember watching that the night before it opened. Mm-hmm. Along with, I believe, the Water Boy was that the other? There was some. I I think that sounds right because I, I mean, Beloved was thought of as this is going to be a blockbuster and an Oscar player, and then it bombed so hard. It, I it might have opened directly against the Water Boy. No, the Water Boy's a month later. I'm now right, trying. Okay. We'll have already played this box. There's some. Game. There's some other. Yeah. Some other comedy that op- sure. opened. Sure, some opposite. like very broad yeah. comedy that, that yeah. And um, so I remember watching both of those, that, whatever yeah. that was that night. That's yeah. a quite dull feature. But I loved, I loved Beloved at the time. It's like I Practical it Magic. Was oh, interesting. The, uh, love that movie. Is there a comedy in the top ten that week? Uh, well, that Practical Magic's the new movie. I don't know. We'll do well, the box yeah. office game later. Right. We're time traveling a little here. Yeah. The so I really liked that. That was around the same time that I was really getting into Paul Thomas Anderson because Boogie Nights had been out for a year yeah. at that point. Yes. Rediscovered right. Hard Eight as a result of that. Right. And on the Hard Eight commentary track, um, which is terrific, there's actually like two or three commentary tracks on that disc. Right. Uh, he talks about Demi constantly. Right. It's just like He's a Demi love fest. So then you're like guy. talking about Melvin and Howard. I'm like, what's Melvin and Howard? Right. Go rent that. And so that was sort of my introduction to Demi's earlier films. But mm-hmm. I didn't really see most of them. Like mm-hmm. I, I went, I went back, watched Melvin and Howard. Maybe no, I didn't even. That was it. I kind something of just stopped wild, there. Maybe, I didn't no. see something wild until a couple of years later. Right. Um, but you at least now had a context for exactly, where he came exactly from, right. a sense of who he was. And then, yeah. and so when, by the time Truth About Charlie came out, I kind of had that sense that 
um, this was him wanting to go back to mm-hmm. those madcap roots. Yes. Playful films. Yes. The playful right. films. Right. And I remember, I remember that, you know, obviously the truth about Charlie is just chock full of shoot the piano player references. Mm-hmm. They're very mm-hmm. overt. But I remember Paul Thomas Anderson talking at the time of Punch Direct Love referencing shoot the piano player as well. And so I had this theory that they were probably just both hanging out and they had both just made these huge epics. You have to imagine once PTA makes Boogie Nights and is a big, you know, he's like, I got to meet Demi. Right now I'm famous enough that I get to meet my idol. Right. Exactly. So, and, and, you know, they were uh, clearly close friends by the time he passed away. And I never, I've never, I never met either of them, but I did see them both present Greaser's Palace at the Austin Film Festival, which was incredible. Um, uh, it is a thing I feel like we haven't talked about, but on Documentary Now, they've done two Demi parodies. Yes, they did. And in uh, both of them, Paul Thomas Anderson sense. plays the Demi analog off camera. Right, right. right. Which is really nice. So they make it right. the same fictional director doing Stop Making Sense. And I've seen Cambodia. the Stop Making Sense one. Which one was the— what, They're well, swimming to Cambodia, which I believe it's called Parker Gale's Location is Everything. Yeah, it's, it's him so talking funny. about not wanting to give up his apartment. It's, it's him talking about Upper West Side real estate, yeah. and it's Hader in a big it's so you know, wig, and it's great. And there's obviously a lot less of the Demi character in that, but you— I think it, you hear Paul Thomas Anderson saying like action and cut at the beginning and end right. of it, and then in uh, in the stop making sense one, he does a lot of off camera interview lines. So it's also just it's just, I mean the, oh, the, the, the work they do on that, that whole show that series to is... nail the like yeah. exact visual style. It's yeah. It's well, great. they like go out of their way to like get the same lenses. They get the lenses. And, like, they the get the, they make sure and, the color. Yeah, yeah. It's it. so I had this theory that they had you know post Magnolia, post Beloved, they're both just exhausted from these huge epic films that they'd made, which had kind of underperformed. And they were like, let's just go watch uh, some French New Wave movies. And they watched Shoot the Piano Player, and they're like, man, it'd be great to make a movie like this. Right. And they both went off and kind of made a movie in that spirit. And they both opened within two weeks of each other in 2002. Mm -hmm. So that was my theory for a long time. In preparation for this, I was like looking for interviews with Jonathan Demme. Mm -hmm. And finally, like, He's, there were none in print anywhere, really. There was one maybe on the AV Club or something like mm-hmm. that. But then I found a Charlie Rose episode that he did. Right. Uh, and he said that Paul Thomas Anderson was planning to write the screenplay for Truth About Charlie wow. with him. Weird. And so it actually like, so that, really, that really was it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Wow. And that he, but then he got the idea for Punch Drunk Love and just yeah. kind of did that instead. Those are interesting, too. Like those two movies zagging off at different points where Punch Drunk Love is so much – uh, reverse engineered from Paul Thomas Anderson's love of Adam Sandler and trying yeah. to like figure out what he finds interesting about that star persona, but it's also like a major scale down from Magnolia and trying to like focus in smaller budget, right. more contained story, fewer characters, all of that. And then Truth About Charlie is him like staying at the same budget level with like a movie star he doesn't totally know what to do with. Exactly. Who's kind of misplaced. Yeah. Um I was also talking with Sims right before this about like this being part of that weird uh much like uh, Scorsese's Cape Fear where it's like a remake of one movie that's also kind of their homage to another movie. Definitely. Where it's like let's remake Cape Fear in the style of Night of the Hunter. Right. And this is let's remake Charade in, in the, the style, style of, of like early Shoot the Piano right. Player. Right. Um, let's 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 talk a little Wahlberg. I guess we talked about him on the happening. Have we done other Wahlberg movies? I think, but, but the Apes. Well, we did Planet of the Apes. He wasn't yeah. like the other thing Will on Smith, IMDb is that yeah, right. it was supposed to be Will Smith. That's right. what we wanted. It to was do. going. I think it was not just supposed to. It was going to be Will Smith. Will Smith and it Tandy was Newton. greenlit as a Will. Obviously, Smith Tandy Newton. It was in Beloved and mm-hmm. is this sort of exciting new star. Has been in Mission Impossible two at this right. point, but sure. Beloved was kind of her big breakout. Yes. 
And so, and then Ali, uh, which was a monster shoot that went way too long, went too long. Will Smith couldn't do this. Wahlberg comes in at the last minute, which is really crazy. It's also just crazy. But that's why I wanted to talk about Wahlberg. To imagine, like, why, like, how he in 2001, this a studio would be like, yeah, he's a good sub for Will Smith. Like, that's fine. Mark Wahlberg, will, he'll be great. But it's that thing that I always find so fascinating where, like, when someone has their movie star breakout yeah. and people haven't quite figured out what makes them a movie star yet, there's sometimes this hope that, like, maybe they're Tom Hanks. Maybe they can do anything. Well, also, maybe they can apply that water. We see that so often now right. with right. 90% of, like, male stars. And then it takes, like, like five right. years for them, for them to, to find their yeah. circle yeah. back. Either yeah. they fall off or they circle back and they go, don't don't worry. I figured out why you liked me the first time. Yeah. I'm now going to stay. then with Mark Wahlberg, you can also, you have to imagine that Paul Thomas Anderson is, like, well, True. Yes. I made Boogie Nights. Yeah. He was wonderful. Or, right? Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. And then he goes to PTA and he's like, man, Will Smith dropped out. Who should I who, who should fit, who fit this part? And right. Like, hey, he seems I'm... bankable at this point. He's so, he's a known dude. But so obviously he's yeah. a musician, as we all know. You know. Uh, Marcus Marcus. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And a model. And uh, a, a famous, famously, I well, not famously enough, I feel like people don't talk about enough from his uh, modeling days, uh, three nipples. Three nipples. Really? He has three true. nipples. Yes, he has I a little third he nipple. Does, yes. Uh, which is funny considering that he was he's so often shirtless. Shirtless in uh, all these movies. Yeah. Yes. You never know. Uh, the scene where he's shirtless in this movie is, is a little bananas. It's yep. hilarious how they, they play that in the trailer because yes. you're just like, oh, they're about to have sex. Right. And in yeah. the movie, it's just like he got wet a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little uh, few raindrops on him. He, but I feel like 96, you know, 95 years basketball diaries, 96 years fear. And it's like, oh, you know, a lot of energy coming off of it. Maybe he's more serious than we thought. Right. He's so good in fear. Ba- basketball diaries was, oh, he's proving he's a real actor. Right, right. And then fear was, oh, he's playing against type. He yeah. talked about they didn't want Scaring. him to play that part. He worked really hard on it. It showed more range. And then Boogie Nights is obviously the slam dunk. Because up, up until that hit, point, critically I think acclaimed. he was viewed as bargain basement DiCaprio. Right. And this is a role that was sort of intended for DiCaprio, and he's taking it. Right. And, uh, you know, whatever. obviously, that's a lot. And that's how I feel like you have. Then he works with David O. Russell on Three Kings. Mm-hmm. He works with James Gray in The Yards. He uh, finds a couple of filmmakers who really know how to use him in a row. Right. And then yeah. and he's in The Perfect Storm, which I think he's pretty good in. I mean, yeah. that movie yeah. has all these great actors with beards, and they're all just sort of grizzled. And Everybody's fine in that Everyone's movie. fine, yeah. and that movie's obviously about the waves. But it's a waves. huge fucking hit. It's a huge hit, which is crazy. That it was a huge It was hit. such a big hit. It's such a grim movie, and it's really long. And the does premise. That, I mean, that movie probably, does that even play on TNT anymore? Like, does anyone? It should. It felt like for 10 years that was the TNT movie. It's yeah. just crazy that that's, it's an 130-minute movie, and the entire premise is like, there was such a bad storm that this big fucking wave killed a fishing boat. <laughs> and, like, that's the whole movie, and yet, you know, like. Is there know, is there a rescue attempt in it? I mean, does it need, like, uh, you know, I can't, you got you're Diane Lane, Diane Lane right? on yeah. the horn, and Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio is yeah. on a boat trying yeah. to get him. I just remember this point in which hopelessness, like, sinks exactly. in, and you're just like, oh, they're, yeah, they're all going to die. And the first half is them being like, should we go fishing, yeah. you know, uh, wave, you know, and, like, they do it, and then, but, and then the end, it's like, yeah, and then they got, you know. They got drowned, and that was that. But it was also summer blockbuster of two thousand one. Fourth of July, yeah, that was right. like a Fourth of July summer blockbuster, like, like a five. real blue collar blockbuster. But I remember that being like a weekend where they were like, "Oh, this is a massacre." You got five wide releases on Fourth of July. Like there was like a lot of shit. They all hit different audiences. No one knew what was going to rise to the top, and then Perfect Storm just like fucking knocked it out. It- like, I want to say it was The Patriot, which everyone assumed was going to be the blockbuster. Shaft. Perfect X-Men. Storm. Shaft. I know Rocky and Bullwinkle came out that same weekend. It was, like, weird. And then Perfect Storm just, like, 
knocked it out. And I imagine after that— 182 domestic huge, in, in 2000. Huge. Is for a, a blue-collar, you know, special effects-y drama. But when a movie is— Patriot a, is the same weekend yeah. as is Rocky and Bullwinkle, which is crazy. Thank and you. And Shaft— is you know newish and me myself and Irene had come out because I feel like next X-Men week comes is out scary later. movie. Yeah. X Men is the week after that. Yeah. Like yeah, Crazy Stacked. It like rises to the top. It outgrosses all the films that you just mentioned. Right, it does. Um, and then I think everyone had been waiting for Clooney to like achieve the level of stardom right. that they wanted, that they saw for him, and he immediately after that is like, I don't want to do this shit. You know, he doubled down, doubles down on Soderbergh. They do Ocean's Eleven the next year at Warner Brothers. Right. But I imagine that— Well, because, yeah, he must have been in a water This was tank also a period miserable. where Wahlberg and Clooney were really they, tight. They yeah. do Three Kings and Perfect Storm and back to Wal- back. Wahlberg, I believe, was supposed to play Brad Pitt's role in the Correct. Ocean's Yes, he movies. was. He Correct. absolutely was. Yes. He was. And then that was, like, the end of that honeymoon. Right. But, like, Perfect Storm is the last movie like that that Clooney ever does. Is that true? Yeah, I guess so. Right? He I mean, never does like a studio. The only thing that's arguably close to that again is Tomorrowland, mm. which comes 15 years later and, and is he's a only wildly different anyway, film. And he's right. only in half of it. But it's that bizarre thing where you go like for how big Clooney is, it's the Three Oceans movies. Mm-hmm. It's Batman and Robin, which was a disaster, and Perfect Storm. And like the Peacemaker. You know, but those are his only five movies that make $100 million. The Oceans trilogy, <laughs> Batman and Robin, and Perfect Storm. Is that it? Right? He didn't get like... Up in the era? No, no, not. Or, like that's like eighty. Michael Clayton's like fifty. I believe those are his only five hundred million dollar grosses. Gravity. I forgot about gravity. You forgot about gravity. I forgot about gravity. Um, which is I why I'm always think, floating to the top. Uh, Spy Kids 3D Game Over. If you want to include his uh, role in that, and I would Spy not. Kids. He's he in has Spy one Kids shot. Movies. He plays the president of the United States <laughs> in the Spy Kids franchise. That would be it. South Park. If we're going well, there, South then. Park uh, made fifty two. Yeah, oh, didn't do that. It did. I think yeah, it probably comparably did much, great, right? Yeah. But yeah, yeah. but it's funny in South Park. Warner Brothers was Clooney's home studio for a long time. You imagine post Perfect Storm, they're like, great, now we can put you in everything, and he focuses up and he's like, nope, I'm using my star power to get the things I want made. Right. And Wahlberg starts to present himself as like, I guess we go to number two on the call sheet. That's the guy <laughs> we're going to groom into being a movie star. They had just tried placing him in Planet of the Apes in a role he's not right for. So no one, he's right. He's in Planet of the Apes. Right. Burton, though, working with a big director. He also does Rockstar. Of course. Produced by George Clooney. Um, Stephen Herrick movie, I believe. I, You know, this is so funny. I completely forgot that they were, like, best buds. In which he gets his nipple pierced, but not his third. Not his third. Not his third. Yeah, yeah. real missed opportunity there. Right. We'd be talking about Rockstar had much three, more frequently. Right, we yeah. would be. Rockstar <laughs> is like Boogie Nights at 5%, where yeah, it's yeah. like, because it's the same, where he's like, I want to be a rock star. I can do it. You know, and they're all yeah. like, you will never do it. And he does like, it. Loosely based on a true story. Yes. All that true. And then Invincible. No one lets well, me throw that the was big quite skin. A bit later, but I'm 06. saying the, the that three movie movies. is low key kind of great. Like that movie is like a really fun, just you know, dumb nuts like movie you see at a bar. Another weird Disney thing that just doesn't yeah, happen it's a, anymore. It's where, on like, Disney Plus. Once a year, Disney would just make a thirty million dollar sports drama with a big movie star who was relishing the opportunity to tell a small human story. Can you tell was, me? The, McFarlane USA, the last one of those. Yeah, and that movie. It's great. Honks. It's really good. David? I've never seen it. Disney Plus, gotta watch it. Can you tell me the director of Invincible? Well, he's a a cinematographer, right? Yeah. He made one other movie. The Point Break remake? Mm -hmm. Is his name Erickson Core? That's right. Well, just a wild Well done. Erickson Core. Yeah.
Um, but he also, you know, so Truth About Charlie is is his rock star follow up. Mm-hmm. So he's coasting on that rock. I feel like Rockstar actually probably like made its money, right? Like it's pretty well. Um, and post this, uh, he has the Italian job, which is sort of a surprise hit. Yeah, he has I Heart Huckabees, which is probably his best performance. I agree. He has then he has the Four Brothers Invincible Double Punch, which are both like kind of cruddy but profitable, solid on base thriller right. or hits. Yeah. yeah. And then he has The Departed in the Oscar nomination. Wow. Which Followed is, by Transformers, which is where we get to, like, he's kind of, like, been been that version of Mark Wahlberg ever but since. But then there's also that run leading up to Transformers True. where he's kind of golden, making junky, mid-budget thrillers. He's sort of Like, he has that run of, like, contraband. You know, he alternates between what guns. you're talking He's got, right, like, which all shooter, do really well. Max Payne, you know, oh, yeah, and I'm Max just, Payne. I'm jumping, contraband, broken city, two guns, lone survivor, right? You know, like. Because contraband. Also, Two Guns and Lone Survivor all do really well. Uh, sure. I don't know if Two Guns did amazing. They did, did like okay. 80. Yeah. yeah. Contraband then, did like 80 in January. You also have We on the Night, which he's great in. You know, he works, uh-huh. goes back to James Gray. Uh, the Lovely Bones. Everyone likes to forget that that movie existed and he was the star, but. He replaced Ryan Gosling. <laughs> yep. Uh, you have The Other Guys, which is him exercising the comedy oh, muscle. So good he's in. very funny in that. And you have The Fighter, which is, yeah. you know, his passion project that it. He's great. I would say, I would still say, like, I Heart Huckabee's Departed, like, that's maybe his best work. But, like, The Fighter is his best movie star performance. Yeah, his earnestness really pays off in spades in that. It's the best fit for what he wants to do on screen. The Departed thing is still so wild because it it is one of the few examples of what is truly just a pure supporting performance. Right. Like, so often supporting actor is the second lead of the movie who maybe has about as much screen time as the main lead of the film. Um and and or it's someone also, who has have like to talk him into that movie. Like, he didn't want to do it. He was like, "Get the fuck out of here! Right. I want to play because the Leo of the scale role." Of it? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Right. And they had ego. to be like, "You should work with Martin Scorsese, yeah. and this is a very like fun role that you." He can talks do about his agents with. kept on like just like breaking him down to right. do that movie. But that's the other thing is the other kind of supporting performance that gets nominated is like someone just knocks out two or three scenes. Like yeah, they like come the in, William Hurt in History of Violence. They take over the movie, whereas like. Wahlberg is always the fourth or fifth most important character in any given scene he's in in that movie. Yeah. You know? But, but he's any, just throwing fastballs the entire I mean, time. Anytime he's on screen, you're just it's just a joy. It's electric. And and also he does finish the movie. He shoots Matt Damon in the head. And that kind and it of is, there's weirdly some, that it is satisfying. And it revives his leading man career. Like then the, the other crazy thing is uh Depart did so well and they were like, well, how do we make a sequel for this? They were gonna do a Wahlberg oh, sequel, right. right? And Moynihan right. wrote the Wahlberg sequel and right. Scorsese wanted to direct it, and they said Mark Wahlberg can't carry this movie. Well, that's bizarre. I don't know. So yeah. clearly no one knew what to do with him in 2002, and they still don't. It's yeah. just such a weird star career. And you're right that now, yes, he's sort of in that like you know, Transformers and, or B- Peter Berg movies. Right. Or, or family does. comedy. Like and then, the, yeah. Or Feral. He likes Feral, Berg. Well, who's the who's the director of... Uh, Instant Family, Instant, that, that guy. Yeah. Uh, Anders. Yeah. Sean right? Anders. Sean Anders. Anders. Yeah. yeah, so he's like making films with him and Peter Berg, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. And people have said to... I haven't seen Instant Family, but people said like, that's actually like I've a perfectly heard that movie charming is, movie. <clears throat> charming. Right. Uh, so, and, but, all right, so what's he got? A, he's got a bunch on deck. Wonderland. Is, uh, is that a Peter Berg? That's a Peter, Peter Berg movie. Yep. It sounds like. I mean, you said that title, and I knew but it was a Peter Berg movie. An ex-felon named Spencer uh-huh. returns to Boston's criminal underworld of to course. unravel a twisted murder conspiracy. As I'm one like, does. 
<laughs> David all right to me. is leaning in with excitement. You're telling me it's coming out in March? Yeah. Uh, on Netflix. Oh, that uh, sounds like such it is a Netflix? March release. It's a Netflix. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then he's got, he's making something with the um, director of uh, Monsters and Men. The It's a movie called Good Joe oh, Bell. Yeah, that's, oh. yeah, I read that script. It's, um, it's about a father who, uh, his son was uh, killed in a hate crime. So he walks across the country to... Uh, just educate people mm. about you Weird. know compassion, and it is a true story. Mm. And Connie Britton is in it. It looks like uh, I don't know. So yeah, that seems is, more. Prestige. Script was written by Larry McMurtry. And yes. Diana. Oh wow. And then that's kind of a weird Wahlberg. And it's a good he, part for him, though. Really? Yeah. It's like the kind. It's like a blue collar guy who was like super homophobic until he found out that his son was gay. He's kind of a good part for Wahlberg. Yeah, that's like, kind of a good part that. for Wahlberg. <laughs> and then he's got this big fuck-off Antoine Fuqua uh, action movie called Infinite with, like, you know, Chiwetel Ejiofor and I don't know. Is it a sci-fi thing? Man discovers his hallucinations or visions from past lives. Uh, excuse me. I am all Sounds in on that. It's I'll take as much August. of that as you got. I don't know. Yeah. Coming out in August? You're coming out in five August. Five stars. Maybe. I'm giving it an immediate it's Paramount. Five. Oh, it's a Paramount oh, August release. August. Oh, oh boy. Oh, I'm burning with excitement here. Anyway, so he's just going to keep going. And he, he at the top of his IMDb list, it's been there for years, the $6 billion man. One yeah. day it'll happen. He keeps on Talk about a him. movie that has been teased for 20 plus years. Who was the last years. director attached to that? Was it I, Guy Ritchie? Or? No, it was the um, the fucking Wild Tales guy. Oh, right? that's right. The director of Wild Tales. Damien's. Yeah. Uh, well, now Travis Knight is attached. I think Travis Knight's making like almost every film that's coming out in the next couple much. years. Or is it that guy's been attached to fucking everything. Rumored for everything. At one point, Peter Berg was going to do it. Yeah. He keeps on getting different people attached. Travis Knight is drinking from the Uncharted Chalice right now, which seems to like just poison everyone's career. <laughs> we, it's so stupid. Stop trying to make an Uncharted movie. Yeah. It's one of those video games. You, you don't play video no. games. No. But like, it's just one of those video games where they're like, it's like Indiana Jones. And someone sees it and they're like, oh, this could be a movie. Yeah, that's its vibe. Right. It's trying to feel like a movie. That already but there's existed. Actually, there's nothing to hold on to in it, you know, that's not completely derivative. So like trying <laughs> sure. to make a movie out of it is just sort of like. A waste of your time. I also love the idea that they're like, oh, we finally came up with a good take. You know how this character is like in his 40s and he's like a really confident sort of like rakishly charming right. scoundrel? What if we retrofit it into a Tom Holland franchise <laughs> where he's a young, young man who is totally different from that character? We make prequels that never existed to how he became that guy. And it's like, that sounds like you're not making Uncharted. That's a different movie. That's that what happens like you just when want... you've done development right. 80 times on this. You want Tom thing. Holland to find a treasure, you can do that. Yeah, anyway. Is Good Wahlberg a, talk, guys. Is a, I don't play video games, but is sure. Death Stranding, would I like that? Should I get a console just to play that game? Probably. I mean, I feel like that might be your vibe. It feels uh, when's like the last time you played a video game, though? Uh, the last time I played a video game was with the director Aaron Katz. Okay, who sure. um, weather, was uh, really into, I don't remember what game uh, it was. Gemini. Yeah, Gemini. Right. He's 30, a Gemini man, one could say. 30 minutes into playing whatever game it was we were playing, I realized my cons- my uh, controller was not connected. <laughs> nice. I thought I was playing, and nice. I was just like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. And I didn't realize that the game was just playing. Well, that's, I mean, that's my... That is a my, Kojima experience where it, yeah. if you play Death Stranding, you're basically watching several three-hour movies in the middle of your game. My favorite kind of video game is uh, a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, I'm really considering getting Death Stranding. I have uh, a PS4, but it would be my first video game in over a decade that doesn't star Mickey Mouse and or Legos. 
Yeah, you've got your ninth. I've been pretty I, narrowly. I was, just, I was like, I went away for the weekend with David Ehrlich, and he'd been playing it to write about it, and he was, once in a while, he'd just be like, you know, and then, like, there's this baby that you carry around in a mobile womb that'll give you a thumbs up, you know, and, yeah. and I'm like, there it is? Like, how does that slot into what you just told me about how this game works? It sounds like it honks. It's like as soon as they, like, anything without, <laughs> really going without narrative or goals sounds great to me. Like, yeah. like, I think you have to, like, go around and deliver Amazon packages and also, like, reconnect the internet. Yeah. That's what I've heard. Yeah. yeah. But right. David. So good. But also you but make David, pee bullets. Yes. Is there a designated honk button? <laughs> yeah, Can we, you honk? Does the game let you honk? I, I, I guess we're going to need honk. Yeah. Honk code. We need a we need a honk. Great show, great show. Ten drop. comedy points. But George Clooney should have played this part. Well, this feels like better. an obvious. If you're going, oh, it's a remake. Cary Grant originated hey, the role. He was your debonair guy, right? Yeah. That was Clooney's. You know, he's your salt and pepper, Mr. Debonair. And instead, you've got this beret on Wahlberg. That it's just the like the, random, the turtleneck. The beret that randomly shows up in one scene. <laughs> just, does, does it fit? More or less than Tom Cruise with the new Radicals hat and Vanilla Sky. I mean, I feel like that's the last time we've covered such Tom an insane Cruise will hat wear choice. Anything. Look, I just rewatched Eyes Wide Shut, and I forgot there's a scene where Tom Cruise is wearing UGG boots. Do you remember this? <laughs> no. I don't remember him in the boots. There's is it a when scene, he's at home? It's Nicole when he's at home. He's, like, sitting down at the couch. It's before they're about to, you know, have yeah. their big conversation. Sure. And he's wearing, like, low-cut, like, low-rise wow. UGG boots. And I saw it, and I was just like, Imagine the series of discussions because everything in a Kubrick movie is, yeah. is at least talked about. That where like is it Tom being like I've got these furry boots I love them I'm at my most comfortable in them my character should be wearing them or is it that they present the UGG boots to Tom Cruise and to him it looks like as much of a challenge as tying yourself to the side of an airplane or Kubrick's like, he's like I can survive this Tom you know wear whatever you want I'm shooting the scene from the you know top of the bed up. And then, like, three weeks later, they've covered the entire <laughs> like, – he's, like, completely changed how they shot it. Um, I'm trying to – there's uh, – the only image of it available on the internet is incredibly small, but take a look. There he is in his eyes. Oh, yeah. Wow. That is crazy. I don't, even, I don't even remember that. I mean, obviously, that's, like, a production yeah. still. That shot, like, is not in the movie. <laughs> he looks so comfy. What kind of TV do they have? In their uh, fancy apartment. Yeah, they've got, like, a little, you know, circa like, 13-inch CRT. Circa 98, right? yeah. yeah. Um, Top of the line. Do you know yeah, one other random thing? I know they just announced yesterday. By the point you were hearing this, hopefully it'll be shooting. But the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Yes. And in the photo in the Hollywood Reporter, he looks like George Clooney. Mm. It's so weird. PTA. He's like evolved into George Clooney. He's got the salt and pepper. He's a good looking guy. He yeah. has gotten so fucking handsome. And every time he releases a new movie and does a new press tour, I become more jealous of how he looks. He In has, every sense. I like how he dresses. I like he how he carries have, himself. He kind of has a Clooney grin. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, look at that. Yeah, look at that. yeah. That's and a good point. I feel like there was something so, like, devilish about how he looked when he was young. Like, it was like he was owning the, like, the L'Enfant Terrible thing. Yeah. And now he just looks like this fucking smooth, sophisticated gentleman. It's also that... That joke about like it's great if you look like a, a character in your movie, like totally. you look like a supporting character. In totally, your movie. that's a good vibe to go for. Yeah, he always has the hair, the, the period haircut. Yeah, oh, yeah. love yeah. it, love it. He was like, at, you know, when my wife and I first got married, he was like on her celebrity cheat list. Before. But then at a certain point, <laughs> that's how you know you married the right person. <laughs> that point, they want to fuck Paul Thomas yeah. Anderson. <laughs> At a certain that's point, what like, I'm looking for. Celebrity chiefs like stop being cool at a certain point. Yeah, in your career. It, yeah. it's like a cute idea, and then you're like, oh, actually, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. This is terrible, uh, especially if you work in the movie industry. Um, uh, yes, but the truth about Charlie has Mark Wahlberg mm -hmm. with a big old beret, beret on his head. Yes, and a turtleneck, and he's uh, 
you know, Cary Grant. And that's and, about the worst hand he could be dealt. That's like a two seven <laughs> in Texas Hold'em. He's wearing the beret, and it feels like it's it's magnets at opposite sides. Like it should be flying off of his head. He also puts it on so prominently, like in that one scene. He comes he's coming downstairs. He's just like he like. Puts it on. Yeah. He really puts it on with a capital P. And he's P. got like a two degree tilt on it, which is not enough. You need to tilt that beret more if you're going to sell it. Uh, and then you have Tandy Newton, who mm-hmm. is a uh, British actress mm-hmm. um, who, apart from uh, Beloved, you have, I mean, she was Sally Hemings in Jefferson in Paris. That was like. Besieged, a, that Bertolucci movie. Uh, that's before right. This, I think. But then Mission uh, Impossible 2 is the big thing because it felt like Cruz saying like, here, I found a new in, um, major leading lady. Gridlock. Oh, yeah, she was good in that. That's a great movie. Uh, Right, but that was the Mission Impossible thing, and that movie was such a big hit that they were like, I I guess he's, like, extended his star power to her. And Beloved, I I remember everyone being like, this is a breakout. This is going to be Best Supporting Actress performance. It was too weird. Like, her performance is great, but it's like she's talking in the E.T. voice for, like, the first half of the film. The movie and the performance were too weird, and it, it didn't sort of translate to her. But it makes sense that Demi must have loved Working with her. Totally, yeah. And I mean, this movie was designed, like, he was like, what can I make with Tandy Newton? And she's such a good character actor, and I feel like her best performances come out of that character actor vein, but her natural presence is so classic movie star. It is that weird thing where, like, when you see interviews with her, you're like, I understand how you could go, oh, maybe she's the next Audrey Hepburn. But then I think if you ranked, so striking. If you ranked the Much best like Tandy Audrey Newton performances, they're mostly the ones that play against that type. What would you what would you rank among her best performances? I mean, I th- I think she's great on Westworld. Yeah, she is. Um I I think this is maybe a controversial opinion, but I think she's phenomenal in W. I really like her Condoleezza Rice. Oh, I forgot about that. It, she's good. I mean, that movie would've, is I would have nominated so her weird. that year. I think she's the one performance that totally works in that movie. It is funny that this movie has her and Lisa Gay Hamilton, who was Vice's Condoleezza Rice. You have a standoff of the two Rices. The two Rices. Um, um, she is good in Crash, uh, which was obviously a big... Um, you know, awards nominated. And she wins the BAFTA for that and doesn't get nominated for any well, other Well, the award. Oscars relationship with Trash is, Trash is so bizarre. <laughs> because I the, feel like Freudian slip. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where they, they gave a best picture, but also like it's sort of weirdly under-nominated considering they obviously liked it. Like it's, it's the Dylan o- was the only nominated performance and you know, they didn't even nominate Paul Haggis or did they? They, no, they did. He got yeah. director and won screenplay. He won screenplay. He didn't um, it also uh, is the only movie to win Best Picture and not get nominated at the Golden Globes, right? Something like it that. It didn't even get a Best Picture nomination. It won it just came, it Spirit came, Awards a year came before. Late. Yeah, right, yeah. right. It's such a weird— Anyway, she is good in that. Um, now I want to look at— She's had a lot of really unfortunate yes. roles. A like, lot of very things, like Pursuit of Happiness. Love Interest in Norbit is tough. Right. <sighs> it's a yeah. really tough beat. And then yes. she took time off. Yeah. Her family, and then when I was watching she's married Dumbo, to, she's married to the director of um, uh, uh, Mamma Mia. Here we go again. Okay, and her child is in Dumbo, which like were, I right. didn't connect at first, but the whole time I was like, why? Where have I seen this, this young actress familiar. before? Right. I've seen her in a million things, and I was like, oh wait, it's because she I'm looks exactly like, like Ron Fatboy. Run Nor like there's a lot of weird. I mean, Norbit is just one. Of, it's like the definition of a truly thankless like yeah. sort of girlfriend role, where it's like you're not allowed to be funny. She you falls only in love have with to be Norbit. Nice. Your love interest is Norbit. He's not a person. <laughs> like Norbit does not behave as a human does, and she's like doing this Herculean task of every scene having to convey. I think I want to fuck Norbit. 
That's her character motive. I just, I love imagining her calling over like director Brian Robbins and being like, so what's my motivation in this scene? He's like, you just, uh, you're really considering whether or not to fuck Norbit. You're into Norbit. And then when she's on Westworld, it was a little bit of that sort of like, oh, right. Of course. She's she very rules. talented. Like, yeah. Why haven't we been putting Has her she been nominated things? for an Emmy or anything? She won an Emmy. She won, she an won Emmy. the Emmy last year. For season Great. two. Great. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yep. Uh, which was great, and it did feel a little Chronicles like Chronicles of Riddick. That felt like another like, oh, she's going to be in a big franchise. What a weird movie! That movie is worth talking about someday. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, I really would love to. I talk mean, it's about the miniseries. It's the miniseries I'm always pushing for. That that the we Diesel, uh... do the franchises of Vin Diesel. Yeah. You do the Riddicks, the Fast and Furious, and uh, the Triple X. I think Twohy is a is a director you could do. You could kind of do him. You know, you've got um, the Arrival, which is kind of a weird movie. Mm-hmm. Sort of fat Charlie Sheen, stuff, yeah. yeah. <laughs> fat uh, Charlie Sheen. Then you got Pitch Black, Below, I've never seen. That's, That's the, the submarine, submarine movie with Zach Galifianakis. Yeah. I saw that. I yeah. no and then a perfect getaway, which is good. Yes, and like that's like a which, like really robust thriller. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe Roger Ebert said it honked. I'm sorry, the late great Roger I have Ebert to said make it honked. A designated honk yep. Button yes, please. Message. Mission accomplished. Um. So yeah. So I guess we're gonna do Twohy. So yeah. And then Riddick is insane. Yeah. The third Riddick movie is. You, you mean Riddick ass. colon Rule the Dark? What do you, it was not called Riddick Rolled. They, they did that for like DVD really? or maybe European releases or something. Wow. Uh, anyway, so you got those two guys. And then you have this Demi-esque collection of character actors and former collaborators and the French Ted New Hamilton. Wave luminaries yes. <laughs> that he's thrown into the mix, right? You have like um, Lisa Gay Hamilton, Ted Levine, Tim having, Robbins. Having not watched Philadelphia, is Ted Levine in that? No, he, he could be. So, is he, this, so he just went from silence to this. He didn't do. Yeah. Is, yeah, is this, might be the only this the only Demi movie without Napier? Levine, Levine's also in the Manchurian Candidate. He, it might be. I'm not sure. I mean. I thought I saw Napier in the hotel at one point. Maybe yeah. he got and, cut out. Well, he's yeah. not Rachel getting married. Well, right. Was, Does Napier's run end at Philadelphia? Uh, let me. I'm really, he's not in Beloved, No, right? he's in Manchurian Candidate. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Thank God. Uh, well, I was yes. worried I was never going to see his face again. Uh, yeah, he's in Beloved, playing Angry Carney. Of course. Uh, and he's in Manchurian Candidate. Uh, but he is not in this one. Maybe he was cut out, as you say, right? Maybe he had some. Uh, you've got uh, Jung Han, Jung Hoon Park, mm-hmm. who I feel like Demi had seen in that movie Nowhere to Hide, I think, and was like, you seem great. I'm putting you in my movie. Because well, There's in, a lot of those sorts of casts. In the original Shrey, which I want to talk about for a little bit, you have this group of men who are hunting down Audrey Hepburn and it's like uh, James Coburn and George Kennedy. And it's like these classic sort of like weird Hollywood character actor mm-hmm. heavies yeah. and like oddball energy dudes. And then in this, he makes it this incredibly strange group yeah. because like but Levine. Also, he kind of likes them, I feel uh, Well, like. that's the thing. That's totally thing. like this. Levine kind of likes one, everyone. Levine's the only one who's kind of playing it in a straightforward way. He's a little way. scarier, right. And only because yeah. he feels like he's dying in right. every scene. Right. Like. <laughs> right, so even he has to put a sympathetic twist yeah. on the one scary guy to make it like, but this guy's really suffering. And the rest of them are kind of nice. And he, he has that, oh, and probably the key point in the scene, the, mm-hmm. or key point in the movie is the, the uh, tango sequence where everyone's just dancing together and having a great time sharing information while Anna Karina's that's, singing. It's the best scene. And that's movie, a great right? scene, best yes. scene in the movie. And... That's where you feel like this is the movie he wanted to make. Right. And you also are like, he 
just likes all these people. He just wants to hang out with all these people. Well, it's such a He's weird He's taking the thing. bones of Charade, but right, right, there's not really a villain. And no one gets too mad about the identity switches. You know, it's kind of like one brief, it's like, come on. And then they're kind of over it. Which is why the scene, that, the one scene that I feel like really probably doesn't work right. um, is the standoff at the end. Right. Because it's like, no one really cares. Yeah, who, no everyone's one, fine. And I, I, I love that it ends with just like them all just like, Laying yeah, down their guns, like yeah, yeah we, none like, of us, right. we don't really care. <laughs> yeah, right. But it goes on for so long. Like you assume <laughs> yeah. Robbins is going to end. You know, like he shows up, he's Tim Robbins. You're like I'm playing right, the he's Walter the Mathau role. I know, right? It's but so you, bizarre. You know, yeah, okay. Robbins, he plays creeps. Yeah. He plays villain. Right. Like, he'll he'll be right. It'll turn out he's bad. And yes, it does turn out he's bad. Mm-hmm. But right, instead of him dying or you know what, they're just like yeah, well. Whatever. Until he dies in the end credits in like a well, throwaway the, the gag. Classic Demi end credits thing. Yeah. Where he just puts plot in the puts end. Puts a Hannibal Lecter gag. Yeah. And he has like an Anne Ramsey looking mother like <laughs> smiling into a freeze frame as like the last shot of the movie. I mean, it's it's such a weird movie. Because well, Charade is like this sort of, it's viewed as like a light Hitchcock, like a Hitchcock that Hitchcock never made right. sort of classic, where it's Stanley Donan who is much more of like a lighter, more souffle filmmaker and is such a mood guy. And a filmmaker I love, um, but doing a film that's sort of unusually plotty for him. But the thing that's so fun about Charade is it's got this very convoluted like puzzle box narrative. But the movie is kind of flippant about like, yeah, but what you're really here to see is movie stars. And you're here to see Europe and you're here to see the locations. It's very location. And it's a movie that does a great job of it is so confusing it is so impossible to follow on a scene-by-scene basis, but the movie kind of reassures you, like, don't worry, we'll make sense of it for you in the end. In the meantime, just, like, float on this energy. And, and everyone is having a ball in it. Totally. Like, they're all chewing the scenery yeah. and just, just having a blast. And I think everyone was probably doing that on The Truth About Charlie as well, mm-hmm. but they're not actors of the, they're not the same type of actors, and so it doesn't work the same way. And it's also the audience it, doesn't have that relationship. Like with Charade them. is from like the tail end of a certain type of movie star led film, where like the movie star is the franchise, exactly. And people are like commenting on their own personas. Charade has a bunch of like weirdly self knowing like fourth wall break jokes about their past films and their careers and their reputations and the age difference between them. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, you know, this isn't reality. This is a Cary Grant movie. Right. Cary Grant movies take place in their own alternate universe. Mm-hmm. Audrey Hepburn movies take place in their own alternate universe where their wattage transforms everything around them. And it's as if it were a musical and it takes place in a fantastical land. And then Truth About Charlie is him taking that movie mm-hmm. where the plot is already so difficult to follow and then going like, I also want to throw into it the French New Wave, yeah. which was largely, oh, let's take the skeleton of like a pot boiler. But don't worry about plot so much. Right. It's know. a girl, a guy, and a gun, but you mix it up. And it's not about that. It's about the riffs. And the playfulness isn't as much the actors. It's the filmmaking and right. how the filmmakers are sort of deflating the self-seriousness of the pulpy material. Right. So he's putting that level of playfulness onto a script. That only really worked when it was playful in an entirely different way. And then hiring movie stars who haven't really figured out their movie star personas yeah, yet. This is all true. I can't, I and forgot then, to mention Stephen Delane. Sorry. Yes. And Lee then it's Charlie. largely marketed as a pretty straightforward thriller. Like the poster looks like it could be any fucking generic, like it, that it could be paycheck. And you know? the trailer as well. Yeah. 
It's got a bunch of tra- posters too. You've got the one that's like the Eiffel Tower with stamps and a that dead looks body. Like the in Canada. If right. you go see this movie off of that poster, you walk out and burn down the theater. <laughs> now, right? then they also had this one that's a little more lively and cute. It looks 60s little more pop charade. art. It looks right. a little Saul Bassy. I mean, yeah. the, the, the title itself is more fun than charade, which is like right. interesting. It's almost like the reverse of like when they did like Dial Him for Murder became a perfect murder. They bland, right. bland up the title. And this one's like, let's liven it up a little bit. Let's take. Let's take it the next le- to the next it's level. A joke here. And then David, as I'm sure you know, in Britain, the the posters are horizontal rather than vertical for whatever reason, right? Like there's the they always have the subway poster that's yes, yeah. Yes. Well, why would David know that? Because I grew up in Britain. Well, why would I know that? Well, because you're a filmmaker who makes movies. I, I know. I've been quite fond of the the subway posters I've had for my films. For the British subway yeah. posters, I wish, they, I, I wish like... they would fit in my house. Right. Wow. That's the thing. I feel like it, you. The British poster always has this different thing. Mm-hmm. You're not reacting to the fact that I grew up in Britain. Uh, no, because I, 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 it is the truth about David. There's something that Lowry just made me think of that's kind of embarrassing, and I'm debating whether or not to say it. All right, well, you can think about that for a second, but I feel like this poster is, the. it's very small, you guys can't really see it, but it's the epitome of, it's everything is wrong. So, it's two movie stars getting ready to kiss. Two movie stars getting ready to kiss. That's fine. It's sort of their sepia mouths, Their mouths do not look like they're getting ready they to kiss. They don't look like they're anywhere near each yeah. other, but whatever. Then, you're at the top from Jonathan Demme, the Academy Award winning filmmaker of Silence of the Lambs in Philadelphia. So you're like, oh, serious. Terrible expectations. Yeah. And then the tagline is everybody has a secret, which is like not a tagline and also just sort of vague and mysterious, right? Don't you love how they highlighted the word lie? Tr- and That's truth. so clever. And Char- lie. Truth, Char- lie. Truth, Char- lie. truth and, and lie. The billing is Mark Wahlberg, Tandy Newton, Christine Boisson, like, you know, who plays the, the detective. The commandant. Uh, exactly. And Tim Robbins. And you're like, okay. The truth about Charlie. And then it has a lower card of like Anna Karina, Ted Levine. Like Asnavore? Do they bill Asnavore? No. Okay. Yes. Yes, they do. Whoa. I mean, so I'm just like. If I'm seeing that poster, I'm like, what the fuck is this movie? And I just don't see it. And then that no one saw it. So the embarrassing thing I was debating whether or not to say is I've come very close and I'm still debating whether or not to buy a tick subway poster off of eBay. <laughs> I have you no should. idea how I display it. I just think it looks really cool. I think it'd be the most narcissistic thing I could possibly put in my apartment. Yeah, definitely get it. Get it. Of course. I have like the posters they made that are like the regular dimensions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the subway one, it's like a cool format. It is. It's like a nice, it's a very pleasing aspect ratio. And there were like a couple of them that all, I don't know, yeah, you should at least get it. Have the option. Um, how much can it be on eBay? Uh, not, not yeah, too so much. You can at least have it in your closet and then um, make a decision to hang it later on. Uh, I, I yesterday, uh, took a, a road trip up to Farmingdale, New York to buy two pieces of furniture from the set of the tick that were being sold off as part of some weird auction. Sure. So I now own two chairs from the set. Congratulations. I, I'm like the biggest collector of tick memorabilia from our show. And it's because they wouldn't give me any of this stuff for free. Right. You'll be able to make a, uh, a sweeted follow-up. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's what I, I'm going to self-produce a season yeah. three. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Anyway. So I just feel like it's this weird jumble that no one... No, it, it's for nobody. It's for nobody. In that Except same nerds who are yeah. doing blank check filmography. Like, like yeah. we are all Jonathan excited. Demi, like, right. like you watch that movie and you see that the woman in the black veil, and you're like, oh, who is that? And then we look it up, and we're like, okay, that's like the, the woman from La Dolce Vita right. and right. the Fleeny movies. And you see her again at the end in that extended close up where Handy Newton's walking past her. She smiles. And I'm just like, it's so weird. I'm like, that's <laughs> that's what this movie exists for. So yeah. we can sit here and be like. 
Oh yeah, she I was see. in that. I see. I, right, I get right. it. It's like just it's, like where you see Anya Sparta leaving the exactly, storage exactly. unit for one second. I was like, whoa, there she is. But I just remember this being like released as like. Oh, it was pushed back. It was sort of undated for a while. There's some weird Jonathan Demi remake that, like, Universal isn't putting out there. And then when the trailer and poster came out, everyone was like, this looks like a calamity. It made $7 million worldwide and completely disappeared from the public consciousness. And it wasn't like – I feel like Demi usually – I mean, he was a Berlin favorite. You know, he, his movies were usually at film festivals. No film festival for this, even though it came out in October in, like – ostensibly sort of an Oscar-y but it, it slot. It felt like there were no award aspirations. It was a straight commercial play that they didn't even know how to sell. And, yep. and looking back at it now, there was like zero press because I can't find, I found that Charlie Rose piece. Right, they must have done the absolute bare minimum on that. I, right. It feels yeah. like everyone was trying to distance themselves from this thing by the time it actually came out. Like the Manchurian Candidate was at the Venice Film Festival. Yeah. You know, like, you know, usually. And that was 2004? Four. So That's the yeah. following film, yeah. Um, I feel like he probably... You know, obviously had put a lot into Beloved and just like. He's like and that had need- not worked commercially. Really. I'm just going to keep referring to this Charlie Rose interview because that's all I got. Yeah, but like, please. He said like he had a couple of false starts in there and that one of them was Hannibal, which right. he was planning to do. Yes, I think. You- Until he read the Until book. Until he read it. And yes. threw it across the room. He was hypothetically prepared to make yes. the It made total sense that you're right. going to do it. Like, you know, Silence of the Lambs is, right, exactly. Why wouldn't you? Look, anyone else in his position would have probably done it. Not anyone else, but the majority of filmmakers coming off of Beloved. Sure, yeah. Let me just go back. Go to the safe zone. Guaranteed home run. I'll just fucking pinch my nose and make it. It is so telling that both Foster and Demi are the types of artists where they were like, I would rather not make it than make this. Because he cared so much about Clarice, which is what he says. He's like, like, I read it and I just like, he's like, I love Thomas Harris. And I told him, I, I just. Don't, I, don't I like can't what accept here, what right. you've done to they the They pulled character. a Rachel. Right. They threw their book across the room. Do you think he or Jodie Foster were the first? Because they obviously both basically declined. I think like, it was think probably. Think tandem? I, like I imagine like the book, the, the manuscript was, the galleys were delivered, right. you know, with a, a courier waiting to yeah. take them back. Yeah, right, right. And they both sat there and read them like on the same day. I like to imagine they were on the phone reading it to each other, yeah. trading off every other stand. Just being like, oh, it's pretty, okay, okay. Uh, Good uh, dick. Uh, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> You hear, they both heard each other throw the book In unison. The, yeah, exactly. They harmonize. And, and so I think he just wanted to, pro- he, the other thing he said in the interview is, he really loved the mad spirit of the original charade. Sure. And mad spirit is something you could also apply almost, to his Almost films. all his 80s output. Exactly. And so he's yeah, like, yeah. let me just go do that again. And you look at, I mean, he said he was like very involved in the script. And which is, you know, maybe that was like the biggest surprise. Right. Because I assumed he probably just got the original script, had some folks brush it up. And then was like, let me go do crazy, like panning through dialogue scene, camera tricks and things like that. And and so the fact that he was as invested in the story as he said he was was a surprise to me. But you right. ju- you look at the way he made it, and that's not surprising at all. You're like, yeah. he just wanted to go make a film like that again. And I sympathize with that. But but it is weird. It's like he's using this as a vehicle to make his – to do the kind of filmmaking he wants yeah, to do. Yeah, he's like – there's the digital video stuff. Like he's like – Throwing formats I, out. Yeah, I feel like that scene with Tim Robbins by the river was all done on HD. Yes. And there's like the early one, 90s HD. Yes. There's and like the, the one in the Euro- cab with Tammy yes. Newton and Mark yeah. Wahlberg. Right. That's all. Like, and then the Eurostar thing, you know, where yeah. they're in the train and like the camera's all shaky and You're like, green. he's doing this two years before uh, a collateral. Yeah, this is like Attack of the Clones. But like a year, year after Ali, which has that really grainy digital stuff yeah. when he's running. Yeah. Right. 
It's very odd. It also yes, is this it is. weird Fujimoto? thing. Uh, uh, Fujimoto, Fujimoto, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this right. whole crew is yeah. there. Yeah. Um, it, it's also that thing of like in the – I feel like the late 90s, early 2000s especially and this is sort of like the tail – not the tail end but a couple years later this kind of completely dries out. But Hollywood has not figured out how to perfect a franchise model yet. So few franchises actually work that – the way that they can find kind of security in developing a property that feels field tested to them with a built in audience is take a classic Hollywood film and remake it with really big movie stars of the moment. Right. And it feels like that's the kind of blank check you can get is whatever you want to do, if you can figure out how to attach it to a remake of a studio film from the 1960s and you can pick two people who are either major stars or on the rise, they'll give you like 40 to $60 million to do it. Sure. I wonder what the budget of, the Psycho remake was. Are you like me that you think that movie is kind of great? I love that movie. Yeah, isn't it good? Uh, fun fact. Um, For uh, let's see, uh, sixty million. The same nuts. budget. Nuts. Jim, Jim Whitaker, who produced Pete's Dragon and working on a new film with him now, he, that was his first producing credit. And oh, I was wow. like, I was like, I hope you, I hope you're proud of it. I hope you're proud of it. What What well, is his is takeaway? He? he he. You know, the thing he told me was that um, his big, you know. Uh, Influence as a producer on that film was Gus Van Sant wanted to make the shower tile green. He's like, Gus, it's got to be white. <laughs> that is bonkers. So that was the big thing he talked us out of. I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that. That movie is so wonderfully strange. It's a. It's so great. It's a. It's a piece of film criticism, it is. and it and is. I, in a way, wish the truth about Charlie was more of that in some ways. Right. Um, I mean. Yeah, the thing about Psycho, though, that it has over a remake of Charade or a remake of almost any movie that exists is that Psycho is one of the most visually indelible yes, movies ever made. Mm-hmm. So every copy is recognizable, and then any tweak, you're like, why'd he do that? Because there are so few tweaks. Right. But anytime he does one, it, it sends a shiver you. up your spine. It well, becomes like to you Warhol's well. Empire. Yeah. It's such. Where like anytime anything happens, it feels like a seismic event. It is such a good movie. It is so strange. I feel like it probably almost plays better now that Vince Vaughn has tipped back to weirdo. Mm-hmm. You know, like for sure. At the yeah. time, he was kind of this sort of like interesting dramatic actor. And then he goes full comedy, and it's like that's so weird that he yeah. played uh, Norman Bates. Yeah, but now it's kind of like. Mm, Actually, there was something to that. Well, it's a good thing it won the Razzie Award yes, for Worst Director. Yes, winky, I hope winky. he's proud of that. Winky. Gus? Yeah. I feel like he has given so many interviews with so many different answers as to why he made it. He like has, it's almost hope, become this thing I, where he toys with people. Yeah, about I, I hope it. he's right. proud of the Razzie. Like, I hope he's like, oh, uh, I hope yeah. he yeah. displays the Razzie. Yeah. He yeah. has an Oscar. No, he doesn't have an Oscar. He doesn't. No, but he's got nominations. He's got, a, got a couple noms. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. I know what you mean. Like I like I feel like the st- the the blatant references to the French New Wave are a way of saying like this is in communication with film history. Right. Totally. We're having a conversation. But it's here. a little bit too on the nose. Yeah. You, you think when Charles Aznavour just shows up in a hotel room, materializes, or, or, or when to he sing? plays the record and she, he's like, you know, Aznavour, he's like, oh, she's shoot like, the pl- piano course, player, right? Of course, yeah. I know shoot then the piano two player. Footage of shoot the piano player. Right. <laughs> that he has to put the stars and directors of the film he's referencing. Do you think he made him watch it and stuff? Like, I, I love he imagining. Yeah. Do you show movies for your crew and cast? Like, it's so hard now. Like, is I, it? Like, I. We um, we always try to, and this you know, on this last film we did a kickoff where we're like, let's watch something that has nothing to do with. Sure, you know, we always have the reference material that mm-hmm. we talk about, but they're like, let's watch something that just gets us fired up about movies. So we watched American Movie, which was a great way to. But then we also watched um, uh, Lost in La Mancha, 
Oh, sure. And so, I was like, I was like, maybe that. We were afterwards, like, maybe we shouldn't have watched that right, one. Right, yeah. We're about to make a movie where an actor's on a horse. <laughs> yeah, that one's yeah. close to the bone. Yeah. The whole thing, right. Exactly, exactly. Um, that's, I just like the idea of Demi like being like, Mark, Tandy. Let's yeah. all get you know, together. Lisa Gaham, yeah. yeah, we're going to watch uh, Shoot the Piano Player and Charade back to back or what? I don't know. Just see, it's just fun. So we're going to go watch. We're going to watch the Agnes Varda, uh, Uve, and, and and yeah, we're watching the Gleaners and yeah. I. All right, get ready. <laughs> well, it is that. I mean, it's I, I keep on harping on this, but it's the thing that I find so fascinating about this movie. <laughs> it's such a tough life for these Gleaners. The movie's best quality and its most confusing aspect is that. Right, it's relying more on the playfulness behind the camera rather than the playfulness in front of the camera. And if movie stars are being that playful, you can kind of sit back and feel a sense of comfort and security in, I'm in good hands even if I don't understand what's going on. They're winking without winking. I can coast on this. Whereas when the filmmaker's being that playful, if it's breathless and the plot doesn't really matter, you can vibe on that because you're not disoriented by how little you understand. Whereas this, when every scene, every character is redefining who they are, what their relationship is to everyone else, and what they're trying to get. Even I, having seen Charade probably five times, Charade is a movie that I love. I've weirdly seen it so many times just because I always watch it with other people. Uh And it's one of those movies where uh, if you ask me the day after I've watched it what it's about, I cannot tell you. When I'm watching it, it makes sense in and of itself. And more than like a day away from a viewing – I cannot even remember the basic gist of it. Mm-hmm. And watching this, having seen Trade five times, not having seen this movie before, I kept on going like, what actually <laughs> happens in Trade, a film I've seen more than most films? And it's I, all the same thing. So this movie has more information. Ide- identical plot. But, yes. And they're like explaining things even more, but it's still harder to. Right. Because you're like, something feels like it's being obfus- obfuscated for me here. Like there's right something. Right from the beginning. You're yes. being invited to pay attention to the plot more. R- totally. You are. And. Right. As a result, you're and the plot is also just as confusing. Yeah. We're not so, going to try and explain yeah. that on this episode because no. it would just be thankless. I mean, Wikipedia, this is like the rare Wikipedia synopsis that doesn't try. Like, no. I, like, I went to knows? look at it and I was like, huh. Yeah, some yeah. bullshit happens. Um, I think there are a couple problems are, one, Wahlberg is not great at changing his persona. No. So anytime it's like, it turns out I'm this guy, it seems like he's just the same guy and you can't really get a handle on him. He has a base level earnestness yes. where he is not above the material, right? which <laughs> is so great in so many movies. But right. in this, you need someone who is sort of like Cary Grant who right. or the George Clooney could do where he's sort of like like you were saying earlier hey everybody you're in safe hands I know what's going on I'm going to be at the end of the movie pulling the rug out from under you and it's going to feel great well, there's also you watch just yes, you watch yeah. the whole movie thinking does Tandy actually know everything and that's going to be the twist? Right. Which is not the twist. Because no not one what would Charade fall for about. what he's selling. Exactly. No one's going to buy that. So it's like, is there some final Tandy twist? But there's not really. And no. it's just like, okay. Oh, okay. I guess it was okay. That, well, yeah. right. In lieu of talking about the plot, I want to go a little deeper on these two performances specifically. So like the Cary Grant thing is so fascinating because like so much of the mythology of Cary Grant is the, he is a created ideal. He's Archibald Leach. That famous quote where he's like, everyone wishes they were Cary Grant, including me. You know that he was sort of so knowingly and openly to the public, like I have created a persona in quotes. It is a perfected character. You know, Cary Grant has as much to do with Archibald Leach as like Groucho Marx has to do with Groucho Marx. Um, and so it it means that even though he is not transforming himself yeah. every time the character reveals himself to be a different person, Cary Grant in and of himself is so much a facade yeah. that you accept that this guy is fake. Right. 
and that you're never going to get to the bottom of the layers. The Wahlberg thing is the exact opposite where he is so earnest and so incapable of playing outside of his range. He is so quintessentially who he is that there's something kind of nice about the fact that the movie does not make him work too hard to try to sell him as being anything other than what he is. That he always sticks out as a sore thumb and as a counterpoint to Cary Grant who is so confident, so smooth – so successful and seductive mm-hmm. that Wahlberg always feels like a guy who's trying a little bit too hard to sell this idea. And the best Wahlberg scene is the end of the movie where he goes to his weird office underneath the stairs. And you're like, this is this like dorky American guy <laughs> who has completely failed for two hours to sell the idea that he belongs in Europe. <laughs> right. That his office is like littered with literal footballs. Yeah. And he's got a suit that doesn't fit him really well. And he's like some dork who like actually would be a spy rather than the kind of like slick James Bondy spy. Um, that's pretty appealing. Yeah. And it's pretty appealing the scenes where it feels like it taps into that. Where it's like he's almost a little too academic and studied in trying to be a charming light person. The problem is you don't believe she would ever fall for it or that anyone would ever fall for it. It does seem ridiculous. That's why all the lines from the original film like just them saying I love you. You're like what? Seriously? (laughs) Come on. He feels like the quarterback deciding to do the high school play. (laughs) And you're like he's pretty good considering. He's got some screen presence. Right. I I will say when I saw the movie – in um, 2002, I liked his performance a lot. I was a big. Mm-hmm. I was. It was. I, I was full. You know, fully sold on Mark. Mark you want to believe in the future? I of just Mark loved. I, I liked. I still like him. Yeah. One of the funniest things that's completely random is like when Ted Two came out. Uh huh. I was like, can't wait to see a Ted Two. Like, I really like Ted One. And my wife was like, you never saw it. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I love Ted One. Yeah. And and then I was like, oh wait, I haven't actually seen it. You felt you culturally like, like you had trailers, felt like culturally seen right. it. The trailers had made me laugh. And yeah. I really like Mark Wahlberg. So I just assumed that I saw it and loved it. That is so I wrote like a whole review of Ted Two based on the premise that I had not seen Ted One. <laughs> wow. And had to like rediscover it. Do you do it for Talk House? Yeah. 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 Did That's you ever so watch Ted One? I did. Sure. Okay. Well, there you go. You got to it. I saw both of them. Sure. I I would argue that Ted 2 has a pretty great premise, even if it doesn't know what to do with it. We talked about Ted and Ted 2 too much on this damn podcast. (laughs) Ted 1 has no premise outside of the main hook. It's got no story. It's just a series of things happening for two hours, essentially. The idea of Ted 2 is... Does Ted exist as a human being? Does he deserve human rights? He is a magical creature created by a wish. Should the government be able to view him as a sentient being? I think it's a pretty insane premise for a film. I mean, it kind of goes into some of the stuff you've talked about with Forky. Yeah. Our greatest movie star. Do you like Forky? I like Forky. Oh, boy. Wow. I, a very qualified like. I did not think Forky justified the perfect ending that was Toy Story 3. Wow. So I, I so you're for, just for me, sort of like no sequel necessary. Yeah, I, Toy right. Story 3, uh, I saw it with the aforementioned John McGarry mm-hmm. uh, here in New York, and I was just like shaken to my core. I was like, this is the perfect ending to a franchise. Willing to, ex- I was willing to go into Toy Story 4 yeah. ready to um, have that franchise reignited, but I was like, you know what? It, I, I didn't need it. Weird. I, I mean, yeah, because I'm obviously a Toy Story hyper fan, but I prefer the ending of 4, which I know I'm in a a wild minority on. Among the Toy Story hyper fans? Yeah, also amongst everybody. I feel like even the people who like 4 prefer the ending of 3, but the Forky thing for me is just so robust, and I want Disney to start announcing that Forky's in other movies. Sure. That would be so good. Right. I want them to be like Forky's playing. Do a Forky? If I make another Disney movie, I'm I'm going to pledge right now. 
If I make another Disney film, I will put Forky in it. Forky's going to be in that one. I'm just waiting for them to be like, never mind. Uh, Javier dropped out of negotiations. Forky is playing King Triton in the in the little. Is Javier Bardem playing King Triton? As of now, Javier Bardem is in aggressive talks to play King Triton. What do you think? He keeps wielding a trident. What what do you think he's going to wear? He's not going to be shirtless. No. He'll have some right, sort of— Right, he can't be. He can't be, but then it's not King Triton. But he King won't Triton be. is, is it's true. The, the chest is really where the authority that's, that's comes from. That's where the performance comes from, right. from uh, Kenneth—what's what, Kenneth, uh, his name? Uh, oh, it's Kenneth Mars Kenneth as Mars, King Triton, yeah. which is so weird. The Nazi from The Producers <laughs> oh, sure. is the voice of King Triton. Glad he's the Nazi from The Producers. Anyway. Yes. Um, I'm very curious what the— Garments Me too, and you're like, aren't they going to dye his hair white? Is he going to have a long white wizard beard? He must, right? Not opposed. It, or is he going to be? He might be beardless with white hair. But could he do that? I don't there know. are certain things like legally, like Aquafina playing Scuttle. Scuttle. We were Great. just talking all about, about it. That's all about. Who's playing but Flounder? Jacob Tremblay, your man. Ah, the Trem. <laughs> I love him. Our most consistently bankable you, movie well, star. Well, Doctor Sleep putting a dent in that. Well, but that's he's not even advertised. I know. Have you if seen Doctor Sleep? They put him above the title. He gets, uh, eviscerated he, by. It's a uh, pretty brutal scene. Yeah. 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 If they put him above the imagine, title, that movie would have opened to 80. I have to imagine he wanted to. Like, he was like, really murder me. Well, right? Like, I, think, I haven't done that yet. I mean, obviously, Mike Flanagan has his his, his guys. His players. And yeah. so he's just like, hey, Jacob, want to be in this? And he's like, yeah, whatever he was, you do. He was thirst trapping Mike Flanagan, going, murder me, Mike Flanagan. <laughs> it's. I just feel like he's a risk-taking actor who's like, I want to do something new. I want to be eviscerated by Rebecca Ferguson on screen in like a 10-minute sequence. That's really quite upsetting. Fucking Tremblay. Yeah. I mean, I think it's maybe your finest piece of writing ever. And finest piece of writing ever. If I had to be the one who chose what to submit for your uh, Pulitzer bid, then I'm not winning. Sure. I would pick Jacob Tremblay is reviving the mid-budget studio film with, with his, his bare, bare hands. hands. <laughs> After Good Good Boys. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good Boys, a great box office. Yeah. That's yeah. true. Um, uh, yeah. Okay, the Thandy Newton. What's weird about Thandy or Thandy? Is it Thandy? Is it Thandy? You're right. Know. I'm a moron. Thandy Newton. What I find interesting about this performance is it feels like she is really going for Audrey Hepburn. She is giving. She's the one actor in this movie giving a performance that would fit into the classic charade. Right. Whereas everyone else is doing a weirder, more modern thing. She is very much playing like classic Hollywood star. And especially in terms of, like, this weird balancing act that Charade pulls off, which is all these horrible things are happening, and they're rolling off their backs, right? Like water. Like, it's like Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn constantly are witnessing people being murdered and going, like, oh, ho-hum, and making small, like, Hollywood banter. It's so del- – like, when she's like, I wouldn't take a bath in there if I were you. Like, it's just so charming. <laughs> like, yeah. And, and, and I find he does it anyway. Yeah, it's yes. just delightful. It's very odd, though, because it is – She's on a different tenor than everyone else, where although Demi is trying to be playful, I feel like he's a little more interested in the stakes of this world rather than Charade, which treats death as like a weird inconvenience. This movie, like every time someone dies, it lands with proper emotional weight. He is concerned about them being human beings and not like nameless thugs. It's totally true, although I did find it really weird that Lisa Gay Hamilton dies in a pile of lettuce and tomatoes. Very weird. Very, like, very visually, weird. it was very strange. Yeah. And no I one's mad about it. No. Yeah. Like, people should be maybe a little more upset about it, right? They, yeah. they, they react the same way everyone else in Charade does, but, like, you feel like Demi's empathy is, like, 
this is a loss of human life. Of course. And, and which it is. Well, but then Tandy Newton starts crying and it feels so odd at that point in the movie that she is reacting that strongly to something because you've seen her respond to news that her husband got murdered with well, a bunch was, of pithy like bon mots. She was definitely going to divorce him. Oh, she was, de- she was, she gonna was gonna definitely going to divorce him. Even yeah. though Stephen Delane is a very charming and handsome man with a nice face. Weird look in this film. They gave him that, that they, hair. They gave him the weird hair. They're giving him the Da Vinci Code hair. And the thing that Game of Thrones, which he was on for many years and despised every second of, is he's really clear. Yeah, he's always just been like, it was stupid and I didn't like it. And everyone's like, it's like your most famous role now. And he's like, well, it was awful. He played the Thrones? He was Stannis, my personal favorite theme, Game of Thrones character. I've heard that um, name. The Lobster? Stannis the Lobster? He has a personality of a lobster? He does have a bit of a personality of a lobster. Uh, wait, what were you going to say, David? He gets Charlie gets more screen time in this than the original. In the original, yes. he just yes. dies and gets a nice close-up. But that was what was weird. The original, the deaths are all very visceral. Yeah. Like drowning in a bathtub, stabbed in the yeah. throat. The, the yeah. deaths are very Hitchcock-y, yes. and then no one takes them seriously. Exactly, which is delightful. Right. And this is weird, <laughs> where it's like the deaths are sort of like offhand, but everyone takes them very seriously. Because yeah. Demi's such a sweetheart. He is so fundamentally, right, as like you still, say, just upset about, I'm you know, I'm still not person. completely sure how Ted Levine dies. Me <laughs> neither. Hor- horribly. He dies horribly. But I assume he was like blow-darted or poisoned? He's like, he's poisoned or scared to death by Jim Robbins. But also there's an earlier scene where he's doing ac- acupuncture on himself and yeah. no one comments on he it. He has like the three needles just hanging off his right. left so cheek you're or like, whatever. Is he trying to treat a very specific pre-existing medical condition or is he a guy who's just constantly experimenting? Um, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Levine's just got such good energy in any movie he makes. Like, he's just always someone I want to pay attention to. Yeah, he haunts. He's on- oh, <laughs> I, I, I feel it's safe to say this at this point, but when I um, made Ain't Them Body Saints, mm-hmm. um, I, we cast Ted Levine in it. And for... Um, in the Carradine part? In the Carradine part. Wow. He wasn't ultimately able to do it, but for a brief period, I was in touch with him. Yeah. And the first communication he ever sent to me was an email with a video attached. And maybe I can, I might be able to find it. Um, but it was just him playing the banjo for four minutes. And at the end of it, he looked in the camera and was like, howdy. <laughs> and that was it. Oh, my. And I was God. like, oh. And so even though he oh. didn't wind up being in the movie. He just made me rock hard. I, uh, we'll treasure that forever. Wow. And hopefully someday I can I can work with him. God. Wow, that's magnificent. That fucking rules. It's as good as it sounds. Like yeah. I'm not underselling it at all, or overselling it at all. I'm perhaps underselling it. We were talking about uh, in the Sons of the Lambs episode how it's interesting that he's a guy who's never stopped working at yeah. things of various sizes and it still feels like he's underused. It still feels like he so rarely gets the chance to really play to his strengths even though he does such a wide array of different things and different genres with different people, and it feels like he he's out there. Right. He's just so fascinating. Uh, he is somewhat fascinating. Uh, I really what's he what's like what's he done recently? He was the villain in the last Jurassic World movie for the first half. Oh, that's right. Until it becomes an auction thriller, and like which the auction thriller is unfortunately the part I like more in Same that movie. Here. He's fine in that movie, but it's also like a character that's been done in, in Jurassic every single Park. Movie. Yeah, every right. single one of those. So it's just kind of like he's like no, but I'm the big game hunter who's really figured out what I want. He's here. playing Muldoon but yeah. older. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a movie that just sort of happened. Big hit. Yeah, big hit. Did you uh, see the short film? I did. Can I throw out a hot take? Because everyone was asking for oh, my the, take the on Trevorrow, it. Oh, the Trevorrow film? I didn't, what was it called? Uh, a Battle at Big Rock. Okay. I kind of liked it. Uh-huh. I, was, I think it's the best thing Trevorrow's directed. It was um, 
we shot uh, the Green Knight, the movie I'm finishing now, yeah. in Ireland, and they shot that in Ireland. So they basically we were um, starting prep while they were shooting that. So we got to go. Andre Holland is in it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And it was like a random thing that they shot in Ireland, but because um, it takes place in California. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but it was it was pretty cool to go see a big T Rex animatronic on stage. I have to admit, yeah, I was like, I see was. the appeal. Like that's like, it's you know the movies are what they are, but. Getting to make one movie with a giant animatronic T-Rex is pretty awesome. But also, the one he previously directed, like, didn't have any animatronics. The only animatronic in it is the one dinosaur that's dying. So it's nice that, like, Battle of Big Rock has, like, active animatronic dinosaurs. Yeah. I think it's pretty moody. Sure. It's nice in that it feels like it's it's very focused on what it's doing. It feels very streamlined. I think it ratchets tension pretty successfully. He's working with... Good actor. I think the end is pretty interesting because it feels like the first time I've clearly seen Trevorrow having his own totally unique take on the Jurassic World that isn't tied to, to the, what Spielberg's the done. Arc. Right, right. Yeah. You about the ending, like the credits, the ending? Yeah. The goofy, like, you know, here's people interacting with dinosaurs in real life. The end credits horribly. of the film are like uh, cell phone footage of people having terrifying encounters with dinosaurs out in the real what world. What was that Russian dash cam movie? Oh yes, it's like that. That should um, be with the entire oh, next Jurassic yeah, Park right. movie. What the hell is that called? It's uh, it's not called the car movie, but it's called it's the, something the like something that. movie, yeah. right? Um, the I road know, movie. The road movie. It made me kind of excited to see what the next one is. I I would so thoroughly love to be proven wrong and go hog fucking wild on the next Jurassic World, and that the short like gave dinos. me a little bit of uh, excitement. Cool. I should. I'm gonna watch it. Yeah. Um, truth about Charlie. Truth about Charlie. Truth Tandy about Newton Charlie. is doing real old Hollywood stuff. None of the deaths are taken seriously by the characters, but they are by the film. Yeah, that's true. The deaths feel kind of uh, incidental in terms of how they actually happen. There's some pretty right. lovely like Paris location stuff. Yes, like there's, the original. They they made good use of the city. Exactly. There's yeah. the, the the Ferris wheel scene is great. Uh, yeah. You know, sort of shades of third man as well. It is one of those things that also doesn't get talked enough about, I think, in Paraset films, which, uh, much like Beetlejuice, if you say Charles Aznavour twice, he shows up and serenades you. And most films totally overlook that. They do. They just don't say it. It's a scientific fact. I wonder, like, I was, he was definitely, I can't imagine he was there at the same time that they were shooting Mark Wahlberg and Tandy Newton at the end of the movie. So, like, he's, Jonathan Demme's like, all right, guys, look in the camera. Imagine this charming old French man singing to you and just dance and smile. Just smile. It's such so a much weird smiling. Because they, like, kiss. They have this, like, Hollywood happy romantic ending. Then they look straight at the camera. And you're like, is this movie going to end with them just winking to the camera and going, we're movie stars? And then you realize, no, it's Demi doing his, like, subjective close-up. And in fact, they're not looking at the camera. They're looking at their old buddy, Charles Aznavour, back for a reprise of his original song from the film. Not his song originally for the film, but the one song he sings twice in two different languages. What a weird fucking way to end this movie. It's a weird way to end a weird movie, but it's a weird movie. And that's not the ending, and as we discussed. They've done two Austin Powers at this point where they do the joke of, you hear Burt Bacharach playing, oh, and then right. Mike Myers goes, him, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, Burt Bacharach, and the camera whips around to show Burt Bacharach in the location. For Demi to do that after it's been made fun of twice is pretty insane. Right. I wonder if Demi had watched Austin Powers. He I feel like he have. had to have. He, he would have loved those movies. Yeah. He would have really felt for Austin. 
This man, he's out of time. He's been woken up. Now we're turning him into this Miyazaki figure, sure. though, where I he's think, like, I mean, okay, so, so solemn. Like, I watched this Charlie Rose interview this morning, mm-hmm. and um, they make lots of jokes about his name. Charlie, <laughs> Charlie. Oh, you talk about Charlie, oh, yeah. I'm sure. It's like, constantly comes up. The um, God, Charlie Rose, what a hack. Because yeah. <laughs> I do feel like that. He'd be like, oh, Charlie, my name he's, is. Yes. He's the ultimate example of he was doing so little that it almost looked like he was a genius because it almost felt like it was intentionally minimalistic. Like, this guy has to be good at and what like, he's doing. And the set's so simple. The music is so sophisticated. And his questions are so dumb that people could use them as launching pads to get into interesting realms of conversation for 10 minutes that I feel like his guests always made it look like he was a better interviewer. But I've heard this story of when Wes Anderson went on Charlie Rose to um, uh, promote Rushmore and apparently took Charlie Rose 30 takes to get Bottle Rocket right. <laughs> and he went, his first movie, Battle Racket. And they go, no, Charlie, back to, yeah, every time. Yeah. Um, Bottle I, Racket, I Battle once, Rocket. I once saw him interview Vince Gilligan live at some screening for Breaking Bad or something. Yeah. And he was at one point just went, so, uh, you know, uh, the Boston Marathon bomber, uh, Sarnev, uh, he liked Breaking Bad, apparently. What do you think of that? And Gilligan was like, uh, I mean, I don't know. It's, it, I, I don't like that. You know, like, but he didn't even ask questions. He was just like, uh, what, do you, what do you think of that? That's his interview style. But also the Charlie Rose interview style of, okay, he, here are people who are in the junket circuit, right? They're doing all these like five minute interviews where they're being asked the same dumb questions over and over again. Then you go to Charlie Rose. It's spaced out. There's no pyrotechnics. And he leans in and goes, so uh, why do you make this movie? Which is not a very interesting question, but allows someone yeah, to get into- Yeah, they can just into- talk. He right. literally, he's like, that's the beginning of this interview. Of course. So why a remake? Now, to right. be fair, a solid question for the truth about Charlie. <laughs> yes. Why make this movie is a pretty solid <laughs> yeah. question for this one. So that's when he brought up the term mad spirit. Okay. So then you're like, okay, wow. I get it. Yeah. I, know Jen- I, I know Demi. I know why he made this movie. It all makes sense. The thing that- that really got me this morning when I was watching this interview um, was that he was so happy talking about it. Right. Like he was so enthused. He just, you could tell that regardless of whether he was happy with how the film turned out or happy with its reception, by that point, clearly the writing was probably on the wall right. after the film had been delayed. Right. I think that he loved it. And wow. you could just That's feel, nice. you could yeah. feel this coming out. And like that just, and when I, the one time I saw him in person talking about the Robert Downey Sr. film, he was just so pleased to be talking about it. I just was so excited to be talking about it. And and so that love for his characters, I think, transmitted to the film at large. Yeah. And regardless of whether the film is beloved, uh, no pun intended, mm. or not, <laughs> it uh, I think he really cared about them. Like, even if he didn't invest himself completely in them, I'm sure he did, but, like, he just, like, loved the movie. And I, that was really moving to me to see. And that was one of those things that, like, I aspire to myself is yeah. to like have that like to you know just not, not a, love and yeah sometimes they don't turn out sometimes they're not the best thing right. ever but like there was integrity behind my desire to make it and the people I made it with I love so much and they did such good work he always talks about such, the good work that everyone else does he says that you know he he always tries to hire people who are smarter and better than him right and he's so modest and sort of like collaborative in that sense and so he never would put down a movie because he'd be putting down his collaborators who he loves so much and and i just really was touched by that it's he was so infectious whenever he was talking about films whether it was like presenting something or talking about his favorite things or even talking about his own films and he's maybe the only filmmaker i can think of where anytime 
in any interview, and I've been trying to watch and read as much as I could, uh, which there's not a ton, but throughout this miniseries, anytime he cites the work of someone else who worked on the movie, it always feels so genuine yes. and wholehearted. Mm-hmm. He's such it a never sharer. feels like he's yeah. just sort of giving lip service to someone. Where he'll talk about like the great Carol Littleton, one of the yeah. best American editors alive. What she did in this film is magnificent. And a lot of times also when people say things like that, it somehow feels like they're complimenting themselves. You know, they're talking about how good that person's work was yeah. in their movie. And it's like they're talking I about. I gave them a chance to do good work. Whereas and, this is And more, look at how much my movie yeah. owns. Yeah. Versus him, he's just like, what a professional, you know? This person came in and did their job so well and I'm so grateful for it. Right. Um, it is, though, weirdly a movie, almost like it's funny that it, it got invoked here, but like uh, the Gus Van Sant Psycho, mm-hmm. where I can't imagine watching this and not having seen Charade because it is so convoluted plot-wise that you kind of need to know what the normal version of this movie is right. to be able to appreciate normal. what he's doing as a director so that you can take away those aspects. And then there's that weird fact that the DVD had Charade as on the second disc because Shrade was public domain public domain that's so weird so they just chucked it on to yeah. but it's just so funny to think that like the movie comes out it's a bomb people are like why did he remake Shrade and they do a DVD and Demi's like put the movie everyone likes on the, yeah. the special feature why not and I Charade, thought Criterion had put out Charade. They did. They it had. had gone out of print. Okay. Yeah, it had yeah. gone out of print. And then yes. later it, it came back and they restored it and everything. But it but was at available that as a time, DVD extra. At that period in time, it was the first time Charade had been on DVD in like five years uh, in any good format. Because there were all these like horrible yeah. dollar bin public domain transfers. Uh, it's, it's so What weird. a weird movie. Also, I feel like people will perhaps listen to this episode and be like, all right, we're going to buckle ourselves in for a weird movie, and it's right. not weird in the way that you expect. Like, no. It's, no. Like, it's weird, it's, but it's not so weird that you're watching Dadaist art. No, it's right. It exactly. still has like these weird like formulaic thriller elements 100%, that yes. don't really right. work. They don't work because yeah. the stakes are just sort of a little yeah. absent. They feel yeah. like doing homework. And there's yeah. no romantic, there's not much romantic tension between Mark no. and Tandy, even in the scenes where they're like, Oh, I have to get undressed and change or take a shower. You know, like these scenes that should be sparking yes. tension don't really, you know, amount to a ton. No, it's so it's yeah. more just you watching Demi have this wild time and yeah. do scenes like the scene where Anna Karina is singing and everyone is dancing together and it's it's sort of joyful. Uh, if you also- know who Anna Karina is, you have to like kind of know that. Like, yeah. and if you don't, you're like. Why does the scene exist? Right. Why, why, does why are these characters exist? doing this? Like these characters don't know each other yet. It, it is also such a weird thing of like it, talking about the the joyfulness of his like filmmaking process and how much he enjoyed making this movies. Most times that we watch like movies that are either disastrous or have di- disastrous reputations, even if we like them and come to their defense, they very rarely look like movies that were fun to make. Yes. You know, it's usually like, man, this was such a difficult birth. How did this turn out this way? Even if the director stands behind it, the actors were miserable or the production crunch was insane. Something went horribly wrong. And this is a weird example of like, it looks like everyone was having a fucking ball. And the movie selectively translates that to the audience. And other times you kind of just can't get in. Totally. Yeah. Completely. I also, if it was 60 million, it must have been a long shoot Uh, or lengthy. That makes sense. I, and all in the budget is, Europe too. is tough it's, to yeah. reckon with because it's so like everything. Unless Wahlberg's making like fifteen, you know, yeah, like maybe, some huge yeah. chunk, right? But it also feels like 
it makes sense if it's greenlit as a Will Smith movie. Yeah. And they've yes. allotted. Definitely, yes. definitely. Right. Yes. Even if Wahlberg is getting a 25% pay cut from what mm-hmm. Will Smith would have gotten, he's still probably getting an insane amount. And right. they've also adjusted everything in the also, budget Aznavour's to the level of quote, Will Smith. That's why people don't say his Aznavour, name twice. Yes. Yeah, right. Yes. I mean, he's like in $10 million, please. <laughs> you know, with a movie that. I'm so small. The movie. <laughs> like Hutcherson size. That so. I think it's, you know, if I were listening to this. You know, and went and watched this movie. The movie I think I'm going to get is Ocean's 12. Of course. Right. Something that is basically like challenging every formal storytelling exactly. convention it's, in Hollywood. It's like, what would Harmony Corinne do with this movie? <laughs> and, and a movie that is similarly rejected by mainstream yes. audiences and only performed better because it was coasting off of the movie that everyone loved. Exactly. Like the most purely enjoyable movie of a decade is then followed by another weird experiment where a director's like, I want to make an homage to all those weird, convoluted Euro thrillers. Yeah. I yeah, really no, like I, I kept thinking, oh, Ocean's 12. Yeah. Uh, Great movie. Yeah. Fucks. I just want to do Soderbergh, but I don't know how we it's do so it. It's so long. It's so long and with so many peaks and valleys that, like. What if you, like, skipped every, like, you did every third film? You'd, do, you'd have a great series on your hands, but you'd also be skipping a bunch of great, great movies. Films. That's, that's, the, that's, yeah. the, that's sort of the thing with Soderbergh where you're like, yeah, you can edit. But uh, even the bombs or the weird ones are are fertile for discussion. So can yeah. I tell you a crazy thing I've been thinking about that I haven't even pitched to you off mic, but it's a thing I've been experimenting with in my brain, and I want to put this out there as a flyer. What an incredible uh, setup. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. What if we all move to Mars? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, like someone like Soderbergh or like Scorsese who we'll talk about where we're like, oh, my God, they're so great. They have like well over 20 movies. Yeah. It covers so many different periods and genres. You can't really isolate it to just this phase of their career. It will feel incomplete. Mm-hmm. There's not a clear division point like there is with Spielberg or Verhoeven or whatever. I've, I've had half a thought recently that was like, what if you did someone like Scorsese and we committed to we're going to sandwich it? Right. Like we're going to do half a Scorsese. We're going to do two or three little filmographies in between. I like the idea of doing half of a Scorsese movie. We're just going to do half of a movie. We're going to do half of a movie. But you know what I'm saying? That you would go like, we'll do Soderbergh up until here. Yeah, which we did with Spielberg. But then we're committed to we'll come back and do the other half within the same calendar year. I don't know. Is that an insane idea? I want to see how people react to that. It's out there. It's out there now. It it still becomes a giant insurmountable number of movies to cover. Totally. It just prevents us from having six months where we're only talking about one person. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I right, mean, because Scorsese's the other one, like Soderbergh, where it's like 20 plus movies. Yes. But I think they're basically all worth discussing and would be a lot of fun. Yeah. So it's a year. You just have to commit 2022 to Scorsese right. and 2023 to Soderbergh. Right. Right. With like a little break. For right. A, and then in, May in between, you know, in the middle of Scorsese, we do Walt Becker. We do. For fuck's sake. Uh, okay. Let's play the box office game. Okay. Uh, the film, just to point out, as I believe we discussed, made, I think, $6 million domestic. So not good. Uh, and one uh, overseas. I think it made seven worldwide. Which is, hey, European movie. That's a real flop. Even the Parisians weren't buying yeah. it. I mean, it made even less than Black Hat. It made less than Black Hat. Although adjusted, it probably adjusted. lapped Black Hat. So it opened. I mean, Wait, and what was the budget of Black Hat again? That was like, 100, like $200 million. It wasn't that bad, it was, but it I think 100. it was close to It was over 100. It was over 100. 100. He spent a buck. Yeah. <laughs> His movies are not ever. Um, the way it opened, they opened it on 700 screens in late October. It's a uh, October 25th. Real vote of confidence, you know. And it just opens to two million. It's the 14th 
It's, I mean, just a death doesn't hole. open. Yeah. Does it ever yeah. go wider? Is is that? It's a great question. Does it get to expand? Uh, let's see. I'm still getting used to this new box office mojo. No, it does not. Wow. Nope. I mean, in that case, the multiple is better than I would think. That's true. If it did six. That that's true. Off that's of two. True. Um, but number one. Okay. October 2002. The inverse of this movie, a very cheaply made film that was a huge hit. The Ring? That is number two. That was what I was going to say. Interesting. That is number two. So that's, I mean, which is, that is a real sensation. That's yeah. the only movie I remember that's not like, because like this period of time was like defined for me by Punch Drunk Love and The Ring. Like yeah. Two movies that kind of like rocked my October. The Ring was kind of seismic. I feel like we don't give it enough credit as, I, as a I cultural mean, obviously force. We want to do Verbinski. Yeah. And that's a, it is an underrated part of his career and it is a good movie. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a I, good I, movie. My hot take is I like it more than the original. I think that I it's kind of a better it. made film than the original. I do think that the original has that scare that is so profound of her coming out of the TV for the first time. And I, that was a movie that was a movie that I just rented from my video store knowing nothing. And when that yeah. happened, I really did jump out of my skin. I think the Gorbinsky one has the, Girl under the cabinet door yes. shot cut, yes. which is even scarier to yes. me. Yeah. To where to this day, I will not watch that. I think The Ring was like the first horror movie a lot of people our generation saw in a theater. You know what I mean? Yeah, like first, yeah. like really yeah. kind of scary horror yeah. movie. I think that the video in The Ring, the the tape, mm-hmm. is so good. Yeah, it's so freaky. I watch it all the time. I um, I'm going to die in seven days. I, I partially hired Boyan Bazelli for Pete's Dragon because he shot. The Ring. Wow. And, oh, yeah. I, and so I uh, talked about that video, and he yeah. said they made so many different versions of it yeah. at right. different exposure levels so that it would illuminate the actors' faces at different. It was like oh, just like getting into the technical uh, cool. nitty gritty of right. that video was right. really yeah. exciting. Uh, uh, that, that video, it's on freaking YouTube. YouTube. Yeah. You can yeah. watch it anytime. Uh, it, that's also a movie where like it opened to like 14. And then it went up the second weekend, and it ended up doing like well Open over to 15, went 18 the second weekend, which is this weekend. Yeah. 18 the third. That's, That's nuts. Impressive. That's, That's so incredible. crazy. And makes 129 domestic, 248 worldwide. I mean, that 129 off of 15 is a pretty rare phenomenon. It's bananas. Yeah. Is that like Naomi Watts' biggest hit that's not yeah. like a King Kong? It's edit. those two. Yeah. Yeah. And then the Ring 2 just kind of like, doesn't doesn't exist. Yeah, even where, where they give it to Nakata. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then rings. Did anyone rings. see rings? Were, the plane had uh, the tape. It was on the plane. <laughs> what? That was a pretty good. Too many screens. That was a pretty. That, that was effective on the trailer. Like, it was, was effective like, on the trailer, trailer like, but it like, also did feel like, yeah. oh, is there a plot to this movie, yeah. or yeah. is this all they got? Uh, anyway, uh, so that's number two. But number one is uh, it's an it's a comedy. Hmm. It's an independent ish film. That's a big hit. Huge hit, uh, makes oh well, not okay, not huge, but it makes sixty four on. I want to find the budget on a five budget. Wow, uh, it's a TV spinoff. Oh 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 oh! It is one of the best films of the two thousands. I and I feel like this is a somewhat controversial opinion. Think it's probably the best one. Uh, sure. It, this is Jackass the movie. It is an American uh, masterpiece. Yes. Uh, you think it's it's three the one that people really gravitate towards? That's the one, yeah, because yeah, because the three D. But people also love two. I the reason like, the reason three is like beloved is because it gets so emotional at the end. Right, yes. they're like we're all getting old. Right, 
and look, let's look back at the good times we had together. And so that makes everyone. It's like great. Everyone. It's one of the best uses of 3D ever. It was truly Absolutely. a stunning film to watch in the theater. Uh, I also think there's the added subtext of uh, Steve-O has gotten sober and the entire gang decides to do the whole movie cold turkey uh, out of solidarity with him. So it's the one movie where suddenly they have dread every time the thing's about to happen. Whereas in the other ones, you can tell they're constantly drunk and they're just like reckless abandon. Jackass 3D has the moments where they're just like, why am I doing this? And then the thing starts. That, I mean, maybe this is true for you guys too, but it really was. I went to a school, a boys' school, as I've spoken about on this podcast. United States, country of Jackass. Very common in the United Kingdom to have single-sex education. Oh, this is so funny. You misspoke. You meant to say the United States. Now you get to do it. Yes, the United Kingdom. I grew up No, state. What? Uh, (laughs) And uh, just any lunch break, we're all hanging out in like the homeroom or whatever. Someone would be like, remember on Jackass when they did this? And then it's just like an hour of boys relating scenes from a show we've all watched. My exact experience. So Boring, and yet, like, that's that all they wanted vital, to talk about. That is a vital memory for me. It's just yeah. relating, like, it was Jackass and The Simpsons. Yes. The yeah. Simpsons, yeah, right. which, which was talk. more my speed. Remember but when? I watched Jackass. Remember when? But, yep. but, like, Jackass was also, like, the only really, like, Boise thing that I ever felt infected me. Do you know what I'm saying? You weren't, like, really a wrestling fan. You weren't, uh, I'm trying I, to think I, of any other sports. sports you know, that wasn't my favorite elk of comedy. Yeah, when yeah, there, yeah. when it got into that level of conversation, if it was video games, usually music genres, like, I would yeah. always sort of be a step out of my male friends at that time. Uh, and, and Jackass was the one thing where I was like, I am as into this conversation of comparing Jackass clips. Totally. No, no interest in cars, sports. No. Most music. Yeah, but... Jackass 100%. It's just kind of perfect. And it's also one of those things where it's like you only realize when other people do it poorly what a kind of magical thing they lucked into. Because so much of it is the dynamic of them. It doesn't work if the guys aren't as close as they are on Jackass and you can tell they actually love each other. And when people make it and it's kind of sadistic. Yeah. And people just fucking with each other. What are the other versions of it? Like, because post-Jackass... I feel like it's 87 MTV shows that we don't even remember the name of. Right, right, right. Where you're like, it's a group. They kind of do the same thing, and they promote them really hard. It was five episodes, and it disappeared. I feel like I've seen a lot of people who I can't even remember try to imitate that kind of thing. And even the Jackass spinoffs yeah, never the spin-offs worked yeah. well. were pretty bad. Yeah, that, that became a little sad, too. Uh, Wild Boys. Yes. Remembers Wild Boys? The Viva LaBam. Viva LaBam, of yeah. course. Um, Viva LaBam is the one I, I know yeah. of. Number three is a film. I feel like we've talked about a, a week. I've been trying to find which one, but like a weekend close to this weekend because a lot of these films mm-hmm. we've talked about before. Uh, it's a horror film. I've always thought it's a pretty good time. It had a great tagline. Um, 13 Ghosts or Ghost Ship? Is it a dark? Ghost oh, Ship. No. Okay. Yeah. See Evil. Juliana Margulies. Gabriel Byrne. Yeah. Crazy scene where a wire cuts a whole party in half. A ship. Man, I miss those, miss those Dark Castle movies. I know. Like, it was like a great brief period where like every Halloween you'd get a really good yeah even if it wasn't good I would like really enjoy watching them. was Dark Castle the Joel Silver was or was Joel that the Sam Raimi Silver and Sam Raimi because Raimi had one and Silver had one I think it was Joel Silver and it felt like it was good for business that they were like competing they were like the Beatles and the Beach yeah. Boys where they were like driving each other Sam Raimi went on to do like he did the grudge the first right. grudge Silver remake. and Zemeckis yeah, that's right. Yeah. It, was, right. it was basically right. the Tales from the Crypt crew. Right. right. That was Dark Castle. House on Haunted right. Hill, yeah. 13 Ghosts, yeah. Gothica. Yeah, Gothica. Um, Gothica so though. Ghost Ship, I mean, not a hit. Made 30. I would say that's 
probably below expectations. Memorable opening scene. Incredible opening yep. scene. Um, good premise. One best picture. It did, it did win the Academy did. Award for Best Picture three years in a row. Yeah, weird. They just kept giving it back. They changed the rules. <laughs> um, number four. And I wonder if this is on Disney Plus. It must be. Is a Walt Disney romantic comedy, but you know, I, I would think it's a PG thirteen. You know, with a big movie star. Is it a touchdown or is it Disney proper? Uh, oh, you know, that what? makes a big difference. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, you know how the box office sites yeah, just say I know, Disney. I know. Uh, let's. Oh, right, I forgot. If you search for this, so okay, it's October. It a, there's multiple. Two thousand two. It's a Disney romantic comedy, but you think it is gentle enough that it's it, a touchstone. It, it's gentle enough that you would not be surprised. Were it on Disney Plus. I don't think it's this, but for some reason, serendipity popped into my head. Uh, that's a fair guess, but it's not that. I remember uh, it specifically is, sure that being a Wake of 9-11 movie. That's right. A year before. Yes. Yep. But right. it's probably the same real general time of yes. year. Yes. You yeah. said it is or is not on Disney Plus. Uh, it is. Because it's interesting which things... Make the cut. Dan and, the Dan in real lives. Yes. Dan's in real life. <laughs> it's like attorneys general. The Dan's in real life. Uh, talk about the stars of this picture. Well, you got a big, uh, big female star of the decade. Uh, Is it Sweet Home Alabama? That's correct. Okay. Uh, yes. Oh, that was one of my favorite lines really? of all time. Not when a good Josh, movie, in my opinion. Josh Lucas goes, "Girl, I know you used to be fearless." He does say that. It's that movie, such a good line. One wow. of my biggest problems with that movie is that they're so. I think I've talked about this, but they're so like. Oh, maybe it's not. I could have sworn I saw it on Disney Plus. Now I'm not seeing it. All right, Andy um, Rick, Eddie Tennant. Eddie, Andy Tennant. Yes. Yeah. Not Andy Richter. Uh, would, I would love to see what he'd do with that. <laughs> and he was busy controlling the universe. Uh, he was busy controlling the universe around there. No, it's just, it's so committed to the premise of like, she hates Alabama and yeah. hates where she's come from and is very despite. I know, haven't seen it, but I just like you know, that, she's line very, yeah, it's that line a, in the trailer. It's a weirdly Girl, angry so movie. Well, she, right. When she has come back, she's like, you fucking hicks. I got out of here yeah. specifically because you're all such hicks. And Josh Lucas is playing this guy who makes like lightning Sand, you know, like you know, oh, lightning, like where, yeah, where they, uh, they scoop up like the lightning hit. And right, it's like he's making like sculptures. He has a like, seaplane. Like he's at the Brooklyn he's Bazaar. Like a, he's a very <laughs> successful independent businessman, yeah, and like an artisan. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, there should be a scene where he like files his taxes just to prove where it's like yeah. this man has an LLC. He's selling his art. He's got a great thing going, and she's like, ah. You hick. And Patrick Dempsey plays the Baxter in that movie. He's the mayor's son, and the mayor is Candace Bergen. Right. right. And he takes her on a date. The to, mayor of New York, to be clear. He takes her on a date to Tiffany's, and it turns down he it, it turns out he has closed down the entire store, and the lights go on, and all the employees are there, and she can pick whichever ring she wants for her proposal. I Wait, think is that's his what, lightning art being sold at Tiffany's? Like, no, would that no, be the these reveal? are two different guys. I know, but like that, oh, wouldn't oh. that be an amazing reveal? Like, she's like, any ring you Maybe want, and she's like, that one. If the movie were good. Uh, number five is the the word of mouth sensation of the year. We discussed it recently on the podcast. Uh, my Big Fat Greek Wedding. The big Fat Greek Wedding. It will never happen again. No. When? How long ago did that open? It said it's April? 28th week and it's made 177 oh, on its way to 241. I'm I can insane. only Like, I was a projectionist in this period. Yeah. I can only imagine how shitty that print was by this oh. weekend. <laughs> <laughs> like, because like, we never got replacement prints unless yeah. something horrible happened. But they would just get, like... Titanic was in horrible shape when yeah. we let that one go. And that I just, is so funny and my, to think my about. my big right. fat Greek wedding must have just been in tatters. Because I mean, it, it, <laughs> it only finishes its box office run the following March. That sounds about I right. think it plays for 11 straight months in wide release theaters. Uh, yeah, it played through to April, April 2000. It played a full year. It played a full. It played a full. It played 50 weeks. 
at the 51 weeks at the box office. That is fucking When it hit 52, bananas. they were like, you know what? Yeah. You know what? Wrap it up. Right. That's reserved for Jackie Robinson. Uh, you got to leave before you And has Punch 50. Drunk Love been out for like two weeks at this point? Punch Drunk Love is number seven. Uh, and it has been out for three weeks. Wow. You're really, I mean, your projection is just, uh, yeah. you got Red Dragon, speaking of Hannibal, oh, yeah. uh, which is doing just fine. You got The Transporter. Funny to think that that's that old a franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brown Sugar, which I think that's is a good kind movie. of a fun yeah. movie. Um, uh, is that the one, The when was the first time you fell in love with hip hop? That was the tagline for that one? Or is that? Is that the tagline for that tagline. I also, I just Googled brown sugar, which is as stupid as Googling <laughs> Sweet Home Alabama. Um, You're on a dad rock roll. The rhythm, the beat, the love, dot, 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 and you don't stop. Brown sugar. Oh. Um, you got the tuxedo as well. <laughs> just wanted to shout out the tuxedo. Uh, it's kind of incredible how much confidence Jackie everyone Chan. had in Jackie Chan making American studio films after Rush Hour and how no one actually knew what to do with him. And he talks so dismissively about those movies where he's like, yeah, that's stupid. That's not what I'm good at. I don't understand why they want to put me in a tuxedo with a bunch of kids. But they he just did, did them. He cashed the movies. checks. He did. Yeah. He cashed only, those checks. Only them. Yeah. yeah. But he always talks about it. He's like, I don't understand this American sense of humor. This is not funny. The action scenes are bad. It's a bad premise. What's there's that other? And I'll take it made out to cash, please. What's the other one with a bunch of kids? The medallion is that the other one with a bunch of kids? Well, no, there's the spy next door. Oh, the spy next door right. is the one I'm thinking yeah. of. The That's medallion him doing is the, pacifier. the medallion's a weird, more it's of a grown up. Clear it's like, is it, yes, and is it's it, him doing the golden child. Is it Rennie Harlan directing? I think someone it is. like that. Yeah, but that's that's like it's a mystical. Gordon Chan. Directed okay. that. The, uh, so wait, wait, uh, wait a second. Did, did Rennie Harlan direct? Yeah, Harlan must have done a Chan, right? Ryan Levant made The Spy Next Door. Of course he did. Director of the Flintstones. Um, well, you know what? Let me just look up Rennie Harlan. Yeah. Hopefully he is not a Leonard Skinner song or a type of baking <laughs> ingredient. Uh, just add two scoops of Rennie Harlan. Uh, and you'll get... Rennie Harlan did Skip Trace. Oh, well, that's a real. The recent. With Knoxville. Knoxville. Yeah. Yes. Remember Who Am I? Who Am I? Yeah. Remember that one? No. There's the one I loved was... Uh, it's, it's a Hong Kong one, but he wakes up and he doesn't know who he is. And he goes, who am I? <laughs> For the entire movie. The one I loved was Mr. Nice Guy. Yeah, that one. Where he's that like, I don't want to fight. And he kept on knocking people out by accident. But isn't that kind of the tuxedo thing too, where he's like, whoa, I'm not in control of my body. That becomes the joke, like using his body the tuxedo was like him. the bionic tuxedo, right? right? right, yeah. right. But, but it's also the difference of like, the American films always had to have such a convoluted, overthought hook. And As to why he could do the things he does. Right. In his films, it's like, I don't know. This is the guy's temperament. He's drunk. <laughs> Let fights proceed for the next two hours. End credits, masterpiece. And then the tuxedo is like, 15 years ago in a secret underground lab, a tuxedo was developed. Four medallions were buried in the desert many centuries ago. Like, it's always so overcomplicated. The medallion has the poster where Claire Forlani's leg is in some crazy angle. Yes. That can't be real. Right. It's like coming out of Jackie Chan's head. <laughs> right. Oh, like Ty Sheridan's leg on the Ready Player One poster. Yes. I love Ty I love... Sheridan's leg on that poster is <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> Two years later, we're still I mean, talking just, about What the hell is going on here? <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> it's a full split. She, yes. It's a line. You could. What's, yes. what's Claire Forlani been in? 
recently because she was I, in something recently. I feel I'm, like I'm looking up. She uh, apparently in 2003 she suffered a massive leg injury. <laughs> <laughs> for the listener at home, if you don't have access to the poster for the medallion, if it's not readily available to you, uh, Claire Falani's legs are at 12 and six. <laughs> yes, they are. That's correct. Maybe, maybe 11:45 and six. If you're being generous, 11:50 is in, the most uh, I'll give you. And Jackie Chan is kind of doing jazz hands. He's yeah. sort of like yeah. Lee Evans is also billed but not seen. I think he's the villain. Sure. I think. I haven't seen him at that. I wish he was billed but not seen in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> like he's third on the poster. But <laughs> well, that's the great uh, uh, the Sonic the Hedgehog poster where James Marsden is first billed. It's yeah. Marsden Carey, no Marsden on the poster. Oh, is he not on the poster? No, the poster is Sonic well, and Sonic, Robotnik. You gotta make, not enough room. Yeah. You gotta make room for but Sonic. But you don't put Schwartz on the poster. That is. And you do put. Look, at this point, Marsden that movie's basically title. about to come out. Yeah. It comes it's out just, next week, according. Yeah, yeah. It's February just 20th? it's coming. It just no, it just came okay. out February fourteenth. Wow, we're living a post. That's just wow. the craziest story. Yes, in recent Hollywood history. <laughs> yes. And I people were tweeting at me being when I post tweeted about it being yeah. like it's bad. Like fans shouldn't have that control. Of course, where the backlash horrible actually, precedent. And I can only imagine yes that the Paramount like went to the visual effects studio in Australia and was like. Make Sonic look good, you know, and whipping them and yeah. like quicker. Yeah. Um, but it is just crazy where it's like they released the trailer. It was a calamity. <laughs> it was a moral calamity. Yes. The United Nations assembled. People yeah. were like, this cannot proceed. Paramount was like, you're right. And then they just went dark and then they come back and they look like this now. And everyone was like, yeah, that's fine. That's A-OK. <laughs> Slam dunk. And it's like, does the movie look like shit? Yeah. It looks like it fucking garbage. Same, He's like an alien. It looks stupid. But the difference but is. But everyone's like, Sonic looks fine. I wasn't expecting this also, to be good. It right. also looks like the right kind of stupid. Right. Like even the jokes in it are like, this is the kind of dumb joke I want out of a Sonic Somehow movie. Somehow in that new trailer, Jim Carrey works better. Than it's the so insane. Exactly. It's was adjusted everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's because of the design. Like now all of a sudden I can contextualize this movie un- properly. Whereas like when he looks like the old design, it should everyone should just be sitting down and being like, what cruel God made you? And then your tweet at the time was, what a bad approach to making a Sonic movie. <laughs> yeah. Any Sonic screenplay should Start with exterior green rolling hills. And then green you see the zone. new trailer yes. and it opens with the green hill <laughs> yes, zone. Does. Him running. They took the appropriate note. music. Right. Him saying, hey, I'm Sonic. I like running fast. You go, great. This is the exact <laughs> kind of cinematic diarrhea we wanted. <laughs> Feed it to me. Good job. So this opens on Valentine's Day. It just Day. came out. It just it came just out. It just came out this can weekend. We, can so we, romantic. Can we, what's going to be the top five? Oh, you, oh what's going to be? Oh, the, this is a great game. God, no one's ever thought of this before. This is an evolution of on the record. Wow. Oh, on the record. You want me to find the release schedule? Like, for like, you know, what's sort of like vaguely on pull the Pull it up. I'm yeah. going to pull it up too so we can all look at it. Lowry, you're right, so Birds of Prey came out a week before. Okay, so that'll mm-hmm. be hovering around. You also, uh, some other things that you have hovering around that won't be hovering around are the rhythm section, the much delayed rhythm section. God knows if that'll actually come out. The Reed Moreno film. There seems to be some kind of Hansel and Gretel horror movie called Gretel and Hansel oh, on the books. That's from Osgood Perkins, who I think... I've really enjoyed like the okay. Black Coat's Daughter and the Pretty Thing. Oh, I house. like the Black. Yeah, yeah. Okay, like okay. so, he does like weird like artsy horror films. I could see, but this is maybe the, a little more. It's a little bit mainstream, and the, right? But the trailer was pretty good. It's it's a uh, Sophia I, Lillis from It is is Gretel. And, yes, I, I saw this. I mean, oh, it, that's, it, it that's looks cool. like it could be like a sleeper. I'm sorry, lock it up. We won't do. 
Lock it down. It'll, do, it'll be doing okay. Yeah. yeah. Conversation over. Doolittle will be topping the box office for the fifth week in a row. No, that will have already, Congress will have already intervened to strike it from the record. <laughs> <laughs> One weekend, they'll be like, America can suffer no longer. You know how we that impeach movie, Doolittle. That movie's been in, like, they, they could have taken the Sonic approach with that. Like, yeah. obviously it was troubled a yeah, long right, time yeah. ago. They could have just released that trailer yes. a year ago. Right. Kind Fans would have been in an uproar. <laughs> right. And like... The Doolittle oh, heads? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Doolittlers? They're epileptic right now. Can I say, uh, I think Doolittle is going to be the film that takes the Sonic phenomenon one step further where they release it in theaters, and then a week after it comes out, they go, sorry, sorry, back to the drawing board. <laughs> Pull the movie off the screen. I, I think it'll be they release it in theaters, and then people are like, that was a bad movie, and you'll recently be like, I, the last Dr. Doolittle I saw. Man, isn't it crazy Murphy. that they used to do that, though? Like, they'd release <laughs> yes. a movie. If it didn't yes. do well... Let's pull it. Let's let's tinker with it yeah. for another couple of weeks. Right. Heaven's Gate, famously. Citizens yeah. Band was one of those, right? Yes. This is my prediction. Bird Sonic. I think Birds and Sonic are both probably doing in the forties. Kingsman. No, I think I think if Fantasy think Island, Fantasy opens, Island then I think Kingsman. that could be then Kingsman, and then um, I think Photograph could be a sleeper. Like that could be a sleeper. Five, or five. Six. maybe the yeah. gentleman is hanging on. Also, the gentleman and Kingsman are too Crazy. close together. Get these. Movies further apart. You can't have Guy Ritchie movie wait. and Matthew Vaughn movies near oh, each I other. Thought, I thought the Kingsman was gentleman. I two got different films released two, two weeks films. apart. Yeah, gentleman is, I think, more of a hard R Ritchie. Yeah. Yeah. It's Kingsman, one's I assume, yeah. is more of a, a PG 13. Uh, what's that guy? It's got Ray Fiennes, Harris yes. Dickinson. Oh, yes. The gentleman trailer made me laugh more than any trailer I've seen this year, but I will tell you why off mic. The, okay. ki- the Kingsman also has uh, Risa Fons playing the villain who is Rasputin. He's playing Rasputin. It's the welcome return of Rasputin They've as cinematic from, bad from guy. Hellboy One, from, from Hellboy Anastasia. One. Yeah, Anastasia. He's been a villain uh, from the, of course, the the end days of the Russian royal family. He was a great <laughs> villain then. But I just love his sort of uh, his evergreen value as a villain in movies that aren't about Rasputin. It's that you also, can always right. just throw him in so there. You're like, and guess who's behind it all? Rasputin, that <laughs> yeah. dirty bastard. Yeah, his, his powers are just indefinite enough that he yeah. kind of just fit in anywhere. He's very he claims he's a mystic, but it's all fraudulent. <laughs> Does he keep his penis in a jar or in his pants? <laughs> anyway, uh, so great. Two great box office games. Great yeah. discussion of Truth About Charlie. Yeah. I I recommend people see Truth About Charlie after having made their way through the rest of yeah, the Demi I agree. films. I think, I think you want to watch some Demis, you want to watch Charade. Yeah. And, and within that context, it's a pretty rewarding watch, even if it is not a fully successful movie. Yes. On its own, it is a completely confounding object. <laughs> it really is. And that's why I think people were really distressed when he's like, I've settled on my next project, The Manchurian Candidate. Everyone's like, Jesus Christ, you mean the good John. movie that's good? John. I'm going to remake it. Oh, Jonathan. And then it comes out and people were like, it's actually not bad. Yeah, pretty good. Right. You know, like, that was sort of the buzz about on it. as good as a remake of Manchurian Candidate right. could be. Right. Maybe Solid adult just as good as the original. Right. I don't know. Yeah. And then Denzel, Shaggy Denzel. Yeah, and like it's like a pharma company or something. I can't. It's gonna. I be feel great like that and Man it. on Fire were the same year, mm-hmm. and that was like, or maybe oh, yeah. Man on Fire was the like, no, year before. Months before. I think those but are both. 04. I think they're both oh four. Yeah, yeah. Really like the Shaggy Denzel in both of those movies. There's, there's a weird trilogy Denzel. that is Manchurian, Man on Fire, and uh, Taking a Pelham One Two Three. Yeah, which he's also good in, and that movie's pretty good. Wait, didn't Taking a Pelham One Two Three come out after the time out of? 
Yes. What was his time? It, it is later. It's after, um, uh, what's it called? The other Tony Scott film. Which is the biggest uh, spec the, screenplay sale yeah, of all time. Yeah, the time shuffling uh, one. Uh, de- that's, isn't that Deja Vu? Deja Deja Vu. It's also yes, yes, out yes. of time, but that's the Carl Franklin yeah, movie yeah. that's really more yes. just like, look, he's a horny Miami detective yeah. and what's going on. That was on. a couple years earlier. <laughs> right. Yeah. Deja Vu's the one that's like quite convoluted. Yeah. yeah right. But I think those three movies are like, Denzel is still insanely handsome. Mm-hmm. He is remaking like, Hollywood thrillers with kind of shabby or more broken men in the lead roles. And the thing was always like, how does Denzel rough himself up enough so that he has big Matthau energy? You and know? Unstoppable. Yeah, Unstoppable. Unstoppable, he's great. Yeah. Is so good. Those late Tony Scott movies are yeah. fantastic. Isn't, I, I haven't, Deja Vu is the only one I haven't seen. I haven't which, seen Deja From Vu what either. I understand, yeah. it's a treatise on filmmaking mm-hmm. and film montage, yeah. which I would love to see because I felt like Man Fire was already approaching that in a pretty significant way. Um, almost. I remember thinking like Man on Fire feels like if Guy Madden got to do a big budget action film. And, God, that's a really good take. And I don't you know should. if that holds up. Guy Madden make Captain Marvel too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I'd actually want to see it. No, I know. Yeah, right. But, it's one of those. But it's like double edge. Yeah, like, does exactly. he actually want to? Yeah. We want to waste his time on yeah. that or whatever. Right. But also, Man on Fire comes right after Domino, and Domino, everyone was like, "Too much, Tony, stop it." Domino then, is too much. And then he's like, "Give me one more. Give me one more." <laughs> and then Man on Fire is a lot. That's the one with the, the subtitles. The subtitles, right? yeah. yeah Wait, like, I love that. It's like, so good. I, but the it's, use of subtitles. It's almost he's hot as death. It's he's almost pay like his masterpiece. It's like his Gemini Man, where he like insisted on doing the same thing that everyone revolted against the last time. Right. Except Man on Fire was really successful and very well received. It wasn't that well received, but it was very successful. The New York Times review, I remember being rapturous. Some people said it was really sorted. People were really yeah. grossed yeah, out by it. Yeah. It's kind of an it's, insanely it gross movie. It is a dark in, in, in fucking yeah. movie. It's also really long. Yeah. It's dark and it's heavy and it's grotesque. And he blows a guy's ass up. It's got one of the greatest <laughs> line readings of... Greasy start his death and he's about to paint, to paint his masterpiece? No. For me, the greatest line reading is... Uh, but the guy says, like, I wish, and he goes, wish, one, no, my wish, I wish that you had more time. And he so spaces good. it out like that. That's Love even it. better than Gorilla. He and that's fearless. when he's got to bomb up a guy's butt. He's got a butt bomb. All right, David, thank you so much for coming in. Yeah. Thanks David for having me back. Please just come back every couple of weeks. Yeah. This is great. I would love to. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll figure out, I'll find a reason. A yeah, reason just, you know, wipe your slate yeah. clean. You and know? You'll, your, your film will come out uh, undecided, undisclosed yeah, date I, in 2020. I, so my, my, this February 14th yeah, weekend, so, you know. So my <laughs> guess a lot of is space. by this point, everyone will have seen the trailer. Cool. They'll have formed an opinion. I'm amped to see this. Um, I notably get involved with my trailer so I think the trailer will accurately represent the movie cool. and the any excitement derived therefrom will be justified it's a really weird movie nice we'll okay. see I, I'm excited uh, for people to is see it is it horny? I think of the tale as so horny it, it's an adaptation of the of the tale of the green knight yeah, from a certain legend so I, I kind of discovered a lot about myself in this movie and I thought it was going to be a pretty horny movie mm-hmm. it's a very like my um Catholic chasteness from having grown up Catholic came through and like so it is very horny in some regards but like it doesn't go over the top and I was like kind of disappointed with myself for not pushing that boundary but really, kept, you've cast such a handsome leading man too really. a I mean, looking guy. I mean fans of Dev Patel are going to be very happy I think fantastic um, nice. and I, like to hear. I think that they will you know 
be even bigger fans of him after sure. this film. Sure. Any horniness in the film probably uh, will come from his uh, his performance. Uh, has he got locks? Did you he's got locks. Some- yes. He's got he's got facial hair. Oh um, boy! He is a dreamboat. He is such a dreamboat. Was he using the the moisturizer technique in his hair? Yeah. Oh yes. Do you know this, David? That, he, that article he came out and- while we were. He put Cetaphil sh- yeah. on his hair, and that's the secret. Yeah. Well. It's a that works. It fucking works. Oh god! I don't know what to tell you. If the movie had already opened, I would tell you something else about that product. All right, let's get off. Okay, Mike. We're, we're, like done, we're done. We're done. We're done. Too much. There's some exciting stuff. Anyway, yeah. I hope I hope the movie uh, is. Uh, I hope the trailer is is you know getting people excited to go see it, and hopefully uh, it's out. By so point. we're plugging the trailer and yeah. and film hopefully coming soon. <laughs> maybe it's not. Yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe it's been sold to like Apple. Green. What? <laughs> they're, they're like they're like actually we're gonna we're gonna sell this to Apple. It's gonna be. Hitting streaming in 2021. Right. Yeah. We'll see. Uh, well, thank you for being here, David. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for being here, David. Thank you. Uh, and thank Happy you for being be here, here, Rachel. <laughs> and I'm David now. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, the three Davids. Um, and thank you all for listening. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And thanks to Andrew Gudo for her social media. And thank you to Lane Montgomery for her theme song. And thank you to Pat Reynolds and Joe Bowen for our artwork. Uh, and uh, next week we got Manchurian Candidate coming we teed that up pretty cleanly now oh yeah Uh, so tune in uh, for that Uh, and as always uh, I, I, I think I think Sonic the Hedgehog is gonna honk can't say I've I've had that pleasure Reggie yeah perfect okay ready I'm gonna point at you when it's time for the one have you ever been in love in podcast? Can't Don't show say- up. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. All right. I said I was going to point. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs>